Here we are at another Crash Chords podcast. Of course, I'm Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. Um, we're probably going to get right into things this week for a change. Um, I want to thank again, though, on the tail end of it, to the Wall Street players for joining us, Sands, Who's he what's? Um, it was a pleasure to have Alon and James on the show. It's been a while since I've seen the guys just generally to hang out, so it was great to chat about music that spurred interesting conversation, which I think uh, last week did. So if you haven't heard it, please go back to last week's episode and check it out. But not right now. Keep listening now. And then go back. Yes. Because we're at now. The, the present. Right. But, well, but they're not. They're not at now. No. Technically, we're technically. already in the past to them. It's a whole, like, perception Timey thing. Wimey. Well, they're in a different meaning of now. Wimey, all right? It's, it's following a linear path going on. Now has taken on a whole new meaning for them. That's true. Because yeah. no, now, now to them is not what now means to us in this moment. That's right. Well, People, no, now always means the same now. thing No one will now. probably ever be referring itself. to that now ever again. And that's the moment when they turn off the podcast. Sorry, I wanted to fine-tune that moment. <laughs> you think so so ill of our listeners. <laughs> well, no, I think ill of us. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I love okay, our listeners. Um, I do want to give a quick note that um, I'm working on a lot of stuff outside this podcast in May. Um, at this point, hopefully you came out to see me host um, my uh, album release party with uh, Joseph Bertolozzi, as well as heard me d- DJ at the Waystation for uh, Wasabasco Burlesque. I'll be doing several burlesque, burlesque shows in May, including one that you guys will be interested. Anya Keister and D20 Burlesque is doing a tribute to podcasts, and I am DJing. How do you... I'm, of course he is. One that of, is curious. I mean, one of the performers of named Johnny Caligula is dressing up like Paul F. Tompkins and doing an act. I don't know what's what music, but Paul F. Tompkins, the famous comedian, is also a well-known podcaster with multiple podcasts, so that's how. Something like that. Huh. And so that's interesting. That's um, all I can give you. Yeah. <laughs> and so Anya will be a guest later this month on Autographs to promote said show. And uh, I'm going to propose to her. Oh, really? I thought you were already married. <laughs> I was going to propose to her that um, for the playlist for pre-show and post-show to be kind of a greatest hits from Crash Chords of so- high-energy songs that we've loved on a plethora of albums we've reviewed. Ooh. I think that's a great way to tie Crash Chords into the show. The so Crash we'll Chords best of? Essentially, yeah. <laughs> Makes it sound like we did them. We're just right, kind yeah. of like Which talking not, here yeah. and there. We did. We did. Right. Um, kind of, I guess. So I'll promote that we, we, again we as we get them. closer. Yeah, we but the date for that show is Saturday, May 28th. So please come check that out. It should be uh, podcastception delicious. Uh, no. No? No. What's that word that said? No. Pod- podcastception. Ugh. Which is, you're only allowed to add one, possibly two syllables to Inception. Groans, you can't, you can't groans abound. Yeah. yeah. Well, groans for days. Then I've done my job. Anyway, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about <laughs> what we're doing this week? Today we are doing, if you read the title, Varmints by Anna Meredith. As I've said a few times now, I discovered this album the day after I announced my previous pick at the end of episode 185, Heron Oblivion by Heron Oblivion, in which I announced episode 186's In the Magic Hour by Eve O'Donovan. And the day after recording that, I discovered this album. And immediately, I wanted to do it so, 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 so much. But I had to wait. Through my own pick, even. And each time I say that, it always sounds like I'm diminishing Aoife O'Donovan or that I regretted the pick. I'm not. I don't. I'm just saying that I had to wait the longest possible amount of time, given our schedule, for today's pick. Seven weeks total. Three weeks to cycle through Matt and John, a week for my own pick, two weeks for guest picks, and another week for a listener pick. Life is just so tough, being a podcaster. Or, or being a Crash Chordsian. If you could, can you please put in the uh, Walking Away Hulk music at this point? 
point. Yeah, the sad walking away music from the end of the Hulk TV show. Yeah. Because I, I believe if you were editing, really, you could do that. I really believe for you. You send it to me. You send it to me. Yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> I do have. So it. I, I kid, of course. I loved all your albums uh, to varying degrees. <laughs> but all kidding aside, hubris has not been the motivation behind any of our album picks in years on this podcast. Nor is it the reason today. The reason, as I shared with you last week, and will share with you again, is there was a fascinating PR. Uh, I'm poised to say accident and not campaign swirling around the release of today's album that I think both you guys and all our listeners alike will find interesting or at least curious. Uh, Back in March, I picked up on a story from The Guardian that read, Anna Meredith, the proms composer ditching classical music for club bangers. Kind of a shock and awe title, right? Yeah, seems very um, clickbait. I don't win the word. Sounds uh, very clickbaity. Classical. You read my mind because that's exactly what I thought. I mean, it's, it's bound to get like classical snobs reeling. How could she? And maybe even give the club crowd just a little validation. But you're absolutely right. It, it's clip, clickbait as far as I was concerned. Well-written article, but totally clickbait. Um, as with just about everything, it's not that simple. There wasn't so much of a stark transition for her or a clean break with classical music as there was a period of personal growth. So, bio. Anna Meredith is a Scottish composer. She's a York University music alumnus. Uh, She got her master's at the Royal College of Music. She's a classically trained clarinetist, and her compositions have been somewhat widely circulated since she featured her piece, Froms, in the 2008 Last Night of the Proms, which is a big deal in the UK. They had this big summer classical festival called The Proms, which has been around for like 100 years, but it got really popular when the BBC started covering it around, like, the 1940s. Uh, It's full of concerts and and children's programs. It's extremely educational, and I wish the U.S. had something to rival it. But anyway, the last night of the proms, especially like that of any festival, will get you some coverage if your piece is featured. She wrote uh, other commissions for later proms, of course, and she wrote an opera called Tarantula in Petrol Blue. She also won the 2010 Paul Hamlin Award for Composers, and she was selected to be part of next year's 50 for the Future project, which I discussed uh, about a month ago when I was talking about this year's premiere. Well, that's right. The first one they did ever. It's going to be converted into sheet music for the masses. Uh, So she's a great composer, but she was also employing electronica in her music as early as 2011. I I, I believe it was 2011. She's worked with people in the industry, and, and now she just does it herself. Her EP, Black Prince Fury, certainly introduced it in a very big way, and then Jet Black Raider, another EP, was a bit of a mix, and that leads us to Varmints. So it's not a sudden thing, really, and I think that's why the takeaway of this particular Guardian article shouldn't be that she's some kind of classical apostate. The classical community won't be losing her at all, she just has a second life now. She even said that her classical arts lifestyle actually funds her middle-aged foray into pop, which really combats the notion that there's money in pop. Apparently not for Anna Meredith. I guess but, not. But um, meanwhile, of course, the pop electronica community shouldn't necessarily rejoice just yet because they'll be getting something different, to say the least. Uh, but there are a few lines from that Guardian article that do get at the root of the problem. Her problem, of, in fact, with classical music. Quote, She, Anna Meredith, had grown frustrated by classical's constraints, where months of work can climax in a single performance, and often to a sneery audience. I don't want to write music that people are just enduring to get to the Elgar in the second half, she says wearily. And just to interrupt here, I assume she's referring to the late composer Edward Elgar, who tended to write very grand, perhaps at times bombastic pieces. He he wrote the well-known Pomp and Circumstance March. He wrote a lot of other things, too. But I think she's just using him as an example of, let's say, the headlining performance of the evening, which a lot of contemporary composers open for earlier in the programming, where they get to showcase their soul, their life's work. And I guess a lot of people, sadly, are just like, oh, oh, they're playing Elgar. 
and we just have to sit through the noobs first. Well, that's a shame, but that's a lot of people out there. And the funny thing is that things haven't really changed in the ballroom setting. Rock bands and many artists have opening acts, people who have to prove themselves, because no one's really there to see them. It's all time filler. Time to go to the bar, time to get your socializing out before the real show begins. So you'd have to be a pretty phenomenal act in order to punch through that barrier. But that's the system. Except in the club. In the club, it's quite the different story, and it may actually be an underutilized venue. Generally, no one's sitting there in the club waiting for an artist to show up. No one's waiting, no one's judging. People are just there to enjoy themselves from the minute they arrive to the minute they leave. So there's this opportunity there for Anna Meredith to use her composition skills to subconsciously affect the crowd of very free-willing, non-judgmental clubgoers. And it sounds like that really enticed her. So to put a cap on this, it's just the whole reversal of this situation that I love. We've practically done to death the whole indie goes classical thing. You know, Florence and the Machine, Ben Folds, they all think, all right, yeah, strings will make it grander. And I'm not saying that's not occasionally effective, but it's broaching a trope at this point. And here's an artist who's trying the inverse, which she explains in the last quote I'll read, I've got quite the pretentiousometer running. If there's ever a more direct way to say something, I'd rather do that. That's what I'm asking myself the whole time. Can you be braver? Can you be bolder? Can you be simpler? Can she? We'll find out. Wow. I mean, you dove deep for this I dove one. deep. Yeah. Well, I really just that article and a little bit of bio stuff, but that's it. Yeah. That's well. it. That's it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you actually say the album title name? I believe you did it to be Yes, I did. Right? Okay. So I just want to make sure. I, I peppered it a few I times throughout. At, at this About point, the listeners might have forgotten, so I figured we should remind them. Maybe. Um, so the first track is Nautilus, which to me reminds me of a character from a game called League of Legends, but it's completely unrelated. Although a nautical-themed character. Well, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. It's also, yes, it's a, a nautilus specifically is a pelagic marine mollusk of the cephalopod family Nautilidae, the sole extant family of the superfamily Nautilusae. That was, that was, that's a tongue twister in and of itself. Ain't it? I'm getting a little better at this. Just a little better. All right, so uh, this is, obviously, we're at track one, nautilus. Um, I mean, I didn't know what to make of this track when it first started. It was... I it's, mean, we had this kind of waning sound that was synthy and it's, whined a bit. It's striking. It is striking, I agree. But it's also a little repetitive. It does loop on itself a bit. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a few things that I imagine could be said about this track, so I'm going to try to say just a few of them. Okay. Um, as far as electronica goes, there's so much brass here that it's sometimes hard to actually pick out what is electronica and what is not. I suspect that maybe it all may be electronica, and that there's not really brass present. But then again, maybe electronica is really just the nature that it is looped, because obviously you wouldn't have a brass uh, performer, really, a session musician doing that consistently and evenly throughout. It's all, you know, it all comes down to the computer in the end. But a word for this whole environment was kind of escaping me, and Matt came to the rescue with revelry, oh, as yeah. in in the military vein, but also it, perhaps in like the debaucherous night of drinking vein because of the harshness and the grit inherent in just blasting a horn with all your lung power. Well, that revelry really shows up big time in the 30-second mark, I believe, when the first of the odd horns start coming in and start doing that rising and phasing in and out. The actual tempo that they're going for is very much uh, 
promoting that idea, and that's why I do agree. That word is pretty pretty appropriate for what's going on. I don't I don't even want to get to that yet because obviously that doesn't come in for about like thirty seconds. Yeah. Like I want to hone in on what Matt said. It is repetitive, and that's one of the other things that could definitely be said about uh, the, the intro to the song, maybe yeah. about the the track as a whole, and maybe to some extent about the album as a whole. But he, here's the weird thing I have with that. I realize that the length of this intro. And maybe the track is up for question. Objectively, maybe it went a tad too long, but subjectively, I think it left me way too curious because of its brashness, because it's so pompous almost. It's just this, uh, you know, 3-1, 3-1, 3-1, 3-1. And it's all in A major. It's also rousing, and keyword rousing, not uplifting. I'm actually saving that word for the next track here. But it, it's, it's rousing in the military sense, and it's such a bold track, almost like Beethoven risks that it's taking to expect audiences to get behind this for a full 30 seconds before we get that thing that John mentioned. The little subtlety, the little chromatic rise in the low end. And it's those subtle overlaps that has me thoroughly entranced by this, this new world that she's created. But that goes on for another minute in and of itself. And this is where I'm, I'm starting to get critical because in the first minute and a half, there's little more than just odd distortion work over two basic lines that just you sit with it and you sit with it and you sit with it. This is not something I'm getting behind right away. It's taking a little bit too long. It's 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 requiring me a little bit too much investment for an opening track before I start delving right into it. This I mean, isn't it's not delving. It's it's not something I'm I'm reaching into and this is bothering me. You mean it requires patience? It's not even that it requires patience. Patience is, is something you can definitely cite as you, you're going to need it for this album. In a lot of cases, you're going to need it for this album to really wait for the payoff. Here, especially when the, quote, payoff comes in at that minute and a half, it's not enough. Because what steps up is just is just another version of the siren. And I'm, I'm just, I'm still not in trance. I'm still not into this track. It's taking... A little bit too long for me to enjoy it. Disagree completely, but I'll I'll let Matt go. So so I would argue that the thing that's engaging me about this track is that it's so abnormal, almost Abby normal, if you will. <laughs> you know, Frankenstein reference. I will. Okay, great. Um, um, I think that this kind of strange horn sound kept me intrigued because a lot of intro tracks for albums that I've feel I've been repetitive about saying is that they're oh they're a way to get you in, they pull you in, it's very approachable. Here. It's not approachable. I kind of like that. That's what intrigued me. Exactly. Is that, is exactly. That it did put me off a bit only because I'm so used to being what John is expecting, this kind of just dive in deep and kind of get pulled in. And here, she's not doing that. No, and no, that's no. what I mean by the brashness, the, the, the pompousness of this. Like, it, it feels like it is a little bit just... It's pushing you off. Yeah, it, it's pushing you off, and that's what keeps you curious. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a love-hate relationship, but I, I think that's, that's perfect. That's what I needed to finally get over this hump of just, you know, being anti-repetition in right. the broad. Well, I'm, I'm okay. One thing that Matt said, I'm not expecting it to okay. be enticing or anything like right. that. I want it to be enticing, even though it is, like you said, pushing you off, especially when it starts getting into the meat. It takes a little while for me to delve into it when it gets into the two, two and a half minute mark, when it starts really getting its complexity going. I'm still not really being allowed to approach this song I, I mean, guess is one way of putting it I mean, because the song itself doesn't want you to understand it right away I appreciate that that I do understand and that I, I will actually compliment the musician because 
when you have a track or anything, a piece, something that that doesn't show its cards up front, that doesn't want you to just go, oh, this is a beat that I can go along to. Oh, this is something that I can dance or sing or enjoy or just experience along to it. I can understand that, and I can understand the it's, artistic... It's the mark of someone who's trying to break ground, on, for one thing, and it's also the mark of someone who I think is going toward a very specific an emotion, emotion that's not trying to satiate you. I mean, no one said that that's what music has to be. And I agree with that. But in this case, I'm not getting the love-hate relationships you cited, Steve. I'm not getting the idea of, oh, where is it going? Oh, what is it doing? I'm just getting, okay, it, it doesn't want me a part of it. So in this case, I'm, I'm letting myself remain distant. It's just, it's not enticing enough in its little intricacies, in the odd distortions that come in, in that siren sound that comes in, in the subtle single backing line that, that seems to be phasing in and out. I'm I'm not really invested in where it's going. All right, well, let's discuss a few of these specific things. All right, so you're talking about the siren, and I remember that. It was around after, like, 1.30 when the bass starts harmonizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then after that, you get a piercing way up high, which is still very much in the same rhythm, this whole, like, 3-1, 3-1, 3-1, but it's really way up high mm -hmm. now, and I believe it was actually on a tritone, which makes it sound especially harsh against everything else. But the funny thing is we keep talking about this in terms of, like, oh, it's pushing me away, it's pushing me away. I don't think that's 100% true, especially considering the way I describe the intro as, you know, a kind of military revelry. And, and if anything, that's actually meant to rouse you and invite you. Okay, maybe you, do, you don't want to do morning drill, but, you know, you gotta go. All right, they're right. calling me. I gotta go. So it's, it's effectively rousing, and because it's on A major, I still do get kind of a positive feel until they start layering on those little things. Like, once that tritone goes in there, ooh, it, it cuts like a knife. But that's where I start finding that this is a little bit more complex. And you get other things that are completely outside the revelry feel, and you, you find yeah. her particular brand of this. Um, obviously, she has a propensity for like brass and woodwinds. It seems it's the kind of stuff she likes to use. She is, after all, the professional clarinetist. But then later on, she brings that electronic in. This, like, wub-wub later on. On. It's like a machine breaking, or maybe mm -hmm. even trying to start. I, and I, speaking of that line, that was something that actually started engaging me. That's okay. that's where the the track really started. So we're you know, cutting through me in the face. We're, it, we're, yeah. we're cutting through you, but it takes a while. So I mean, that's the thing. That's my issue. So this, then, what you're talking about is around the two minute mark is where the song really starts to shift. We get a different kind of emotional and sense. It kind of takes this on this almost darker form, but not necessarily just distinctly dark and evil. It just has this kind of twist to it that happens around two minutes where everything seems to shift. Well, the wub wub is very stuttered. Like yeah. it feels very uh, against the rhythm, almost like it have, has its own independent thing going. Which and can then make anything feel a little off. Exactly. And then there's another beat that comes on top of that, just this like straight up, you know, snare drum crash. Right. That that it completely shifts the pace. That, at that point. shifts it. It shifts the pace. Well, it shifts it's your perception of the pace, of the yeah. pace yeah, because right. it's doing this little like triplet thing over the whole. Yeah, the, it's know. working against the actual beat, and that has the effect of changing up the the flow of the song itself, the flow of the piece itself. And I love the, the, like, the reverb on that uh, snare crash, too. It makes it sound like an, an arena rock drum. Um, but at this point, it's like it's it's managed to bring me full circle. It's yeah. back to rousing me again, you know, in the way that, well, only Arena Rock could. Um, but just all those little things, when you break this apart, you if, if you were to just pull this track apart and you play replay certain sections independently, I'll admit that it 
could get very grating, or you'd wonder, what is this? Right. What is this? But we're still only at the intro. I'd suggest if you just let it happen front to back, which I did several times in a row, and even the first time I did listen front to back without like skipping around just to like see, well, what is this album? Um, it's it was wildly fresh, and that was that immediately had me. It's one of the strongest intros I've personally heard in in weeks and weeks and weeks. So I, I don't know whether I would speak to the strength of the intro. I would actually speak to how it engaged me in a unique way, which is absolutely a plus for this track. Um, I also like that as we wrap up this track, it kind of interweaves some of the lighter stuff we heard at the beginning and That's the darker yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that, but what I want to speak to specifically about that is that I think that's where my interest was really hooked because now I'm I'm curious how things are being mixed together and melded. And I'm it's intriguing me for the rest of the album to see how she may do that in the future. And so I like that touch. Well, certain pieces, like, I don't know how else to explain it, but the electronica, like, dubstep style bubbler effect that comes in. Yeah, the wub. The, the, yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not wub, it's bubbly. It's it's But a it sounds bit, like someone going popping. Wub, 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 yeah. Wub. yeah. So I'm I'm just being phonetic. <laughs> but the way it, it it contrasts against the the sharper tones that we've had in the beginning of the track, this and then the rhythmic change between the the back and forth of the kick and the snare mm-hmm. that that very rock, not even arena rock, like rock rock style of back and forth pacing is a lot more fulfilling. A lot more... It's a word I've been using a lot. I have to So you, you sound it. like you're in agreement. Now <laughs> it's the, good. Now the it's great, but... But, but, but is going to be the term of the day for this track. It's It takes so long to get to this point. That, I think, is probably my, my biggest detractor from this track as a whole. The payoff doesn't feel like it was there for the build-up, for the two minutes of investment before I start getting that payoff. It's like I said in the beginning, I think subjectively, I'm admitting it's a subjective, I think it left me too curious, and that's why the length worked to this track, track's advantage for me. Because yeah. it is, we didn't say, it was. it's upwards of five minutes. Yeah, five and, and a half-ish, yeah. Five and a half-ish. And for an intro, yeah, that's fairly long when you have this kind of setup. But the fact that it does take me full circle and that it, it kind of introduces its little emotional or thematic arc within itself with and by relatively speaking doing so little, then I, I think that's just that's that's the mark of a masterpiece to me. Before we move on to the next track, I just want to say I'm kind of in the middle of you guys. I think I'm leaning more towards Steve, but again, at least in relating, that the curiosity is mostly what kept me invested. Um, I can understand where John's coming from as far as feeling like it took a while to get there, but I, again, I'm kind of bridging the gap because I feel like the taking a while to get there and feeling that is what helped perpetuate the curiosity and the engagement. Sure. I also should say it's not uh, shouldn't just dismiss it as an intro. I believe this is this was uh, a single. Yeah. So you it know. was actually <laughs> Kick, uh, kicking it off with a bang. And so we move on to track two now, Taken. Um, and already tonally we're getting something very different, where it starts with this kind of electronic guitar rise, whether it's actually electric guitar or a a electric electric guitar in the sense that it's a synth electric guitar? Well, I previewed it before and I'll say it now. I think we, we bat around the words the word uplifting a lot yeah. on this podcast, but I rarely find such a unique variety of it yeah. as here in this track. Um, why is that? The, the vocals, the melody, the chorus, the, the pulse, all four in concert. Alright, let's just begin at the beginning. Obviously you have those those things you talked about, the yeah. very fast like 16th note rolls, but uh, I think the power of this track and the reason it sounds so positive and uplifting is really more in its chord progression. I think that's mo- where most of it comes from. That, that m- remains pretty constant throughout this track, and I, I find it just to... It, it, 
to go along with the vocals, because that's we but, should also say there's vocals here. I think it's it's both of those things together. Eh, maybe all four things. Everything, everything. You can't. One thing can't be positive if everything else is is chopping it down. Well, I think you're discrediting the vocals a little bit more than you should. No, I, the I, I was going to get more as into the important, if not more so, in keeping me engaged in this track. This because is the so vocals much to are talk gorgeous. About. The vocals really are gorgeous. In but, fact, I was. It was one of those things where I felt like it was almost making the same mistake as the previous track in my eyes, to my ears, except for those vocals, except for the fact that I was being engaged on that front. Right. And once the vocals start really get going, the guitar comes in. That that did so much more to go, okay, all right, I'm invested. I'm done. Here we are. Let's just go along for the ride. And then at the 120 mark, just uh, just about, the bass comes in. And that's a whole nother level. And then the 137 mark, I think, I was looking at it for this one. Then you get that kick drum coming in. And everything seems to be progressing fairly standardly for uh, the build itself. But the breath that we're getting here works so well with what's being said and how it's being said. All right, well, let me just hone in on, you said don't dismiss the vocals. Well, I'm not going to dismiss the vocals. Uh, you seem to mention it just as fleetingly. You have a male and female vocals, um, and I find that they're both like split between left and right ear. So they're both like, like just soothing you at, in tandem. And the melody itself is very, very even. It's almost childlike, but yet it still has this like sing-songy nursery rhyme feel that I, I just, I, I didn't expect to like vocals, honestly, on this album. Maybe that's why I was poised to dismiss it, because I immediately recognized this as the brainchild of a composer turned electronica artist that says to me all about the music all about the music but i don't want to dismiss the pop element that was clearly a motivation behind this album and that leads you to wonder well are there just going to be vocals for the sake of vocals no i find them beautiful so we should make it clear that if we're not mentioning vocals in this particular track it's because there are none there are a bunch of instrumental tracks it's mostly instrumental except for a few tracks that do feature vocals like three i want to make that clear also i want to make it clear that the, the the point that steve made about you know a composer switching over to something more pop and making it um you know feel more pop and the vocals being a part of it because of that i mean we've hinted at that and we'll see more similarities as we go well the key thing was her wanting to enjoy like the environment of a club setting where people are more on the peripheral and just trying to enjoy themselves rather than being deadlocked and judging your every maneuver which is a little bit hypocritical considering what we do however we're trying to be even-handed with all this. but the point i'm trying to make is that this kind of composition turned other genre we've experienced before with owen palette with with saint vincent with with My Brightest Diamond. These are all people who do tons of composition work that also took jabs at pop or something like pop or post-rock. And so yep. I just want that ever-present because I think we're we're all very familiar with those. They're albums. they're more they're more attached to it than than this composer right. is clearly. Um I did maybe I didn't make that clear. I made it sound like a transition. Well, it's it, it may have been gradual and more gradual than the article made it sound like, but it was definitely quicker than, you know, those uh right. artists you brought up where like My Brightest Diamond is if you listen to like 2006's album uh, Bring Me the Workhorse it's it's rock with yeah. doses of classical. It's all very intertwined. They've built their whole their whole system, their whole psyche around it. This is you know more 
dabbling. But going back to the music that John was talking about, as the kick drum comes in after about one minute and 37 seconds, the song takes an interesting turn as far as there's more going on, but it still has the same kind of movement to it. It's not really shifting too hard. The vocals are the only differentiation that I'm really noticing, whereas everything else kind of stays together. But the way they're interweaved mm-hmm. could, I feel, fall apart if it weren't for the vocals. The vocals, I think, are the touch point between the different instrumentations that we're getting at the time, and it kind of is a cohesion to the song that I feel like is really pulling it together. And it's not just that the vocals are so powerful. I mean, yeah, they are pretty darn powerful in this setting, but there's also a lot of shifting going on, very subtle shifts in the actual presentation of these instruments, in what they're saying. They're not being actually repetitive. They are changing their chords. They are going up and down the scale a little bit differently than they were in the previous track. And this is almost as engaging, almost as investing as as the vocals and their presentation and what they're saying. It's it's leaving me desiring to know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm trying to predict the future at this point because I want to know what's going to happen. I, I agree, and also I think um, this is before like the vocals really had their 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 big shining beacon of a moment to me anyway. But two o three, I really was more about the the instrumentation. The bass starts doing this like little seesawing back and forth. That's what really happens around the two minute mark. This this like weird percussiony pitch that accompanies it. It's kind of like bopping around. Uh, Seesawing is the best way I could describe it, and it's just like three notes back. Do 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 do. I love it, um, and that's a pretty good setup for the chorus when it finally starts. And the chorus is quite simply the title of the track, "Taken," and they all harmonize at this moment. It sounds like there are multiple voices. I doesn't. I don't think there's just uh, the female vocalist and the male vi- vocalist. I think maybe they're doubling over themselves or there are two others present because it sounds like a full, at least, you know, four-note component chord here, all harmonizing beautifully around 224. And in the background, the 16th note rolls were still very constant throughout this entire chorus. And I personally like that. We had a little bit of a, a little tiff off, off, off uh, air because Matt wasn't so sure what he thought about this considering that the 16th note rolls are still somewhat in in they're, they're still there they haven't fundamentally transformed the instrumentation at this moment but i personally liked it because it allows the following segment with the real tribal drums uh when they step in to carry so much more impact staggering your expectations essentially what i should make clear is it's not that i didn't like them per se it's or i've raised it as this song this track feels at this point uplifting but ellipses like <laughs> or yeah. even better at the end, I said, I'm not quite sure how to feel about this track. But that's not a bad thing. It's not like the track is indecisive. It's more, I'm burdened to interpret it, and I like that burden. I like the task. I just don't know how I can actually feel about it. And I think that's what's most intriguing to me about this track. And I it's love the, the way time. you just put it. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's the way that I am actually left with uncertainty about how to feel about it, but not in a way that upsets me or baffles me in a negative way that, you know, it's a good burden. It's a brain teaser. It's an exercise. And I, I enjoy that. I'm still at a place where I'm still not quite sure how. The burden to interpret emotion. No, I love that. I would like... Yeah, I want to. I'm going to quote you for years. Okay, um, sounds good. <laughs> Maybe we can stop talking about Lincoln Park and how they're passionate but also sensitive. Oh God. Anyway, but yeah, no, that's exactly kind of the way I feel about this track too. I know I kind of just generally described it as uplifting because I feel I, I don't know I feel good and I feel it, I, not just invested in the track but I'm always interested to see what the next thing is. And whenever mm-hmm. they make little, uh, little take little bold um, maneuvers like for instance that chorus, um, it it's I wonder why it's not going full force. Why is the instrumentation not catching up? 
and then it makes sense to me with the following segment when the drums get really serious. Um, but then, you know, we go back through another round of, of, of verse work, and then the second time we go back to that chorus, this time the drums are there full force. So now mm -hmm. it feels much, much thicker, it's much brighter. more brighter, much rounded. It, it makes it into a so much better finale. And, and, I, I think uh, yeah, that the the core the the chords are just the driving element of this track. I think that is the the emotional question mark um, that you're you're experiencing. Well, because everything seems fairly in line with what you would expect only part of a song to be, but everything's lining up with it, and I think that's what's kind of maybe confusing my brain yeah. a bit. It's it's the pace so far that I think is the most interesting thing about about this uh, this album. Like yeah. we were describing in track one, well, that's not necessarily gone away. Yeah, it's a little bit busier here in track two. The funny thing is there was a word which I didn't say in my intro that was also uh, ascribed to Anna Meredith and that was maximalist. We throw around the word minimalist here on the podcast for things that are just completely, you know, stripped down, really the barest of components. And the funny thing is this strips it down first and then builds it up by being so brash and so uh, bold, as I said in the beginning. That seems to be what makes it maximalist. It's, it's powerful in its simplicity. So let's go to track three. Uh, unless anyone has anything else to say, nope. we go to Scrimshaw. So the name given to scroll work engravings and carvings done in bone or ivory. Thank you, Definition Master. <laughs> um, which sounds like a great a supervillain name for a kid show. Definition Master. Yes, it does actually. Um, oh, I thought you meant Scrimshaw. But well, that's actually too. both. Um, so this is like our first true on beauty track in the more um, mainstream term. You know, we this piece starts with this kind of it, uh, what feels a little breathier than the previous two tracks more open if you will um and it builds in a different way whereas the other tracks were kind of either staggered or kind of dragged out intentionally i feel like this track kind of builds piece by piece in a more structured way i i would say it's the first track that feels a little more serious yeah like not that i didn't feel substance earlier because that i made that perfectly clear but in in, it's right in that part of any album, track three, where things kind of start. It feels very post-exposition in a way. Um, your setting is that of this extremely sharp synth, a kind of like an early model MIDI or something like that. It, it's these rapidly firing notes which really indulge in F minor. It's this great figuration. It's so sharp, like I said, and yet so fluid. It's sometimes rocking back and forth in octaves, other times hammering home the, the, the top F, and then other times descending the scale kind of hesitantly, like it retracts and then it goes all the way down. And I can't even quite say how many measures it takes before the loop finally recycles, if, if any, maybe it, it's just constantly shifting and, and changing and upgrading itself each time, like, like a robot trying to establish its intelligence for the first time, it, it's wonderful. The more random approach that this is taking when it gets paired with the very subtle emergence of the strings into the, into the track yep. is very, very beautiful. Extremely beautiful. That was the cello, the second element uh, that just comes in here. And then the drums on top of that. And yet the drums are kind of benign. They're very slow. They only accent as opposed to, like, let's say, provide the driving rhythm here. I actually thought the drums was the perfect complement to the synth work when you put it in respect with the strings themselves. The strings are playing in tandem with both. And I love how it's playing in tandem with both, even though the drum percussion and the MIDI percussion really is at odds with one another. They're really not comping one another. They're almost fighting. 
Uh, yeah, actually, there is kind of like a sparring element here. I think it all blends in the end, but it definitely does feel like they're sparring, especially with the the busyness of of that um of that particular loop. Like I said, if it indeed is a loop at all, it's. It's very complex in its way. And then the percussion itself grows in complexity. As it starts growing, I'm really True. enjoying I'm... what this is doing. I'm, I'm That line itself, the drum line itself, is very engaging. Around 1 minute 20 seconds, the drums take on this much more rounded feel. Again, kind of like a tribal bop a little bit. Um, and then my one of my favorite parts of not just this track, but maybe the album as a whole. 1 minute 44 seconds you get the beginnings of this slide, this grand glissando, onwards and upwards. The slide doesn't even get to finish before the next segment begins. It just keeps going up and then all the things just punch right through it. It's something so much more powerful and, and magical. It's this moment of tension followed by a profound moment of beauty because there is so much tension right there in that in that glissando. It just feels like everything is clenching up all around you. Yeah, we go back to the whole THX thing. I think we just <sighs> used it last week. But this is even more so than that. It, it, it packs such a, such a punch when it finally resolves itself. And boy, does it resolve. Uh, and to follow that, you're introduced with more of a melody now in the strings. Pure joy from, from this time on for a little bit until things change again. And this is where Steve and I first got into an argument off air because I really disagree with this glissando. Oh. The sliding upward, it's... You disagree it's, with it. Go I, argue no, with it. No, with your opinion of All right. it. It's long, it's drawn out, and I'm just not enjoying what is going on right here. It feels a little bit too sharp. It feels a little bit too prolonged. That its resolution, I like. I love what the next section is. But the instance itself, the moment itself being a little bit too much for me at the end of the day, too focused on a sharp edge, was honestly not not enjoyable to my ears. This sounds this sounds uh, kind of like a poor form retort for this podcast, but just got to let it happen. You can't just jump into this. Of course, there are tense moments and they sound grating. It's what it absolutely is designed to do. But I find that in context, because of where it lands, it is just so gorgeous. That's, it's, that's life in a way. Mm, I wouldn't say it's gorgeous because of where it lands. I would say that it is a necessary aspect of what's going on right here. But the actual nature of it, when you, when I, when I listen to it, I just don't enjoy that note. That may be a taste issue. Well, I, I think like the pattern seems to be so far on this record, I'm going to fall somewhere in the middle. I don't know that it was this kind of awe-inspiring moment for me, but just the same, I didn't dislike it. I think that what the strength of that note has for me is the fact that the things that precede it really connect to it. And I don't know that, that it made it... I, I, I sort of agree with you both. But to explain myself, when we get to the next part where it kind of feels more upbeat and more revelrous, and then shortly after that, around the 2 minute 15 mark, everything drops out except pretty much the melody. That's the change I and, previewed. And so the, that big change gives it this kind of more sensitive moment that feels like, I, I dubbed it as a bridge at the time, and Steve corrected me at first, but then ended up agreeing with me, because even though it's not technically a bridge by the structure of the song, it feels like a moment that a bridge would cause in a song with verse-chorus. She's a composer. It is what it is. It's, right. it's a transition of sorts. Um, but it affected me like a bridge would in a verse-chorus song, but that transition, the way that was held, and then kind of takes us through that moment. Well, let me describe that sound first, because sure. it's kind of like a drum bass 
entity. Like, mm-hmm. it really is like its own thing because they're just so closely linked. And it's sort of still in that tribal vein, but it is so, so striking because it is now just all alone. Everything really has dropped out. Um, and then it does start building up from there. The synth starts making an appearance again, the little, little midi thing. And then finally, once we get to two minutes, 50 seconds, the cello drones start to increase the tension again, and it's back to one of my favorite moments, this time maybe even in a bigger way, because here we start getting this, it's another slide, but it, this time instruments are overlapped. Each one actually tops out at these landings and hold for a little bit, and then they advance upwards even further. It's such this glorious chord that is held um, throughout, like, three minutes 10 all the way to three minutes 32 which undergoes modulations within itself it's 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 wonderful and then there's the following but i'll hold i i also have an issue with this center part up until the final slide and i will say one thing before we get (laughs) before i get into it the second slide the secondary slide I, i don't know how else to term it it's hard to actually term the second quote, bridge of this series track. series of overlapping glissandos that yeah. are very, very, very well composed. The voice leading is spectacular here. Significantly more enjoyable. I really liked how this was done by comparison. Which is funny it because felt, it's longer. It's so much longer than the yes, first. Yes, it's longer, but it didn't feel grating. The integration of other instrumentation took a lot of the edge off of it, the, the, the sharpness to it that was bothersome in the first one. Well, maybe that's because it's trying to prime you for the section that follows, which is also one of my favorite parts about this album two in a row it lets loose completely lets loose it's a little bit back to that revelry feel but this time dominated by a completely different texture these high pitch pierces enter and they are the melody quite interestingly and they're completely against the rhythm itself which it's like these long triplets against the main beat or, or perhaps it's like, perhaps it's like the semiest of, of quavers, like a pickup on, on a 30-second note or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but it's just this glorious thrash that continues until the, the outro starts. The combination of what's going on with the introductory tapping synth versus the bubbly, dubstepy popping synth. Whatever you the want to call it. I don't know how else. That, I can only make allusions. We're, we're clearly struggling in that department here today, but all I can it's say so is solid. I was, it's I was so amazing flailing my arms at this point when I when I heard it. It's big. It's bright. It's and that's so the first much, time. It's such a different feel, a whole new idea from the introduction of the track. And I think this is where my biggest issue occurs with Scrimshaw. The introduction is great. The outro is great. The middle feels like a lot of compressed ideas that don't get enough time to express themselves. You mean the segment that stripped Between down Between the two glissandos. To, yeah. it's, it's just not enough expansion on those ideas. And that, I, those could have been so much bigger and fuller and, ide- and, and, and parts unto themselves greater than than what came before and what came after it felt like that that compression in the middle was a little bit too much for what this track was going for i couldn't disagree more i think that the 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 impact of the intro and the outro and they're not just intros and outros i'm just simplifying here that middle section diving down the way it did absolutely gave the impact i feel like if we didn't have that moment to reflect that moment to kind of sit the impact that follows would have been less. I think also that revelry, I agree with Steve, 
just had this kind of swirling energy that almost felt tornado-ish in a way. You know, it just it kind of wraps you up. And and I think again, if we didn't have that moment to settle, the impact of spinning in place would just be lost. Completely with Matt on this. And I also completely agree with the tornado analogy. That's the way these 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 uh, overlapping glissandas really really come across to me. I, I it is so hard to do such a grand like climax, even especially er- early on in an album. And and she did it twice, yeah. twice, and within a span of time. And how how do you do it twice? It's by bringing dragging it back down before gradually building it back up again. And it's the mark of a great composer. She knows how to make it interesting each time. So. I'll take your point, John. I'll just, I'll, no, I'll just leave it at the door. I, I, I agree in that uh, in that area. I agree. It's extremely interesting. It is enjoyable. It just feels like the culmination in the B section, in the middle, between the glissandos, was not fulfilling enough for me. And that, I think, was where the best ideas of this track were actually located. It's a fair point. It shows that she's a little bit playful, and I think I like that about her, because it's something that you don't quite expect. Um, and and it, it, to me, it, it made this track come across as, as perhaps one of the most brilliant tracks on the album. It's definitely up there for me. But let's make our movement towards track four, Something Helpful. So this song, the way it starts with its kind of steady beat that, I mean, we could label repetitive, but enough change comes in Not pretty quickly. Use a driving, a driving I mean, beat was... It, but it was still steady because it wasn't changing. Each beat was the same as the previous. <laughs> only in the beginning. Only in the beginning. Only the beginning. There was just a thump, and then it's... But then it's very quickly joined by a bass, which starts running up and running down, almost childlike. Mm-hmm. And, and then we bring in the triplets, like, again with the triplets. She loves triplets. I, right. love, I love triplets. We know you love triplets. <laughs> but that, that kind of keyboard chime-esque sound that comes in, that's... Then there's that, too, yeah. Like, I think all of these things come in quickly enough that the reason I'm saying it's a steady beat is because for the first four beats, it's do, do, do. Do. I'm not. I don't have the rhythm perfect, but it's there. Even their space. Well, like we usually go back to, it's like that hypnotizing effect. Yeah. But it, it beca- instantly Stuff becomes so much more. So quickly. It becomes so much more playful than that. And I would just generally this. This is back to a very complete feeling of happy, even though the lyrics, because uh, there are lyrics here, um, maybe would argue otherwise. Uh, let's talk about that voice. I. I. I did preview this as being a little bit adorable, especially with the little, you know, little chimes here and there and the, like, childlike bass running up and down. But I think another reason I feel that way cohesively about this this track is because of the vocals. They're just so high-pitched. They seem so playful. They seem almost in lullaby vein. And they also have that little Scottish lilt, as we do believe these are Anna Meredith's vocals. Um, and she is Scottish. So it's just, to, to my ear, I find the whole thing absolutely adorable. The melody itself is adorable. And the little quiver in her voice, but also the odd lyrics that she sets them to. Uh, it's just a different point of view from how you see. No need to get upset and walk away with those other sites we haven't finished here. At least it's self-transcribed, so that's what we're going with. I love the way her voice seems to harmonize with the music, seems to play off the music itself and the compositional work that's going on right here. But... The MIDI sound that's going on and on and on gets to me after a while that I have to focus on her voice. The chip tuny thing? Yes. See, but I would say that the chip tuniness adds to that kind of adorable childlike nature to it. I mean, it's nostalgic for me. That sound to me reigns in that kind of feel. And I think 
I would agree. I wouldn't agree that it's repetitive and I needed to escape to her voice. I would agree that without her voice and without other instrumentation, it would be repetitive or irritating. But it, in the mix, I think it absolutely fits and it pushes the song forward. It's a good part of the mix that engages me. But I kept waiting for it to culminate. I kept waiting for that rising sound. Well, that was and your that mistake. Pause. Don't. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'll give you that. But here, it's setting up some sort of culmination in just its repetition as it rises up pause and it doesn't lead anywhere that's that's what bothers me about it it doesn't lead anywhere except back to its original starting position and i did not want to keep starting there and it became a driving force of of the melody itself it became a driving force of how the song was progressing yes it was pushing the song forward i just don't think it was allowing the track itself to culminate more naturally. I mean, I gotta say, I, I I not only disagree, but I'm very confused by some of your objections concerning these things, especially considering all the Electronica albums that we've done. I mean, here I just find, like, it, this is the Electronica album that I've been waiting for, because it is just, it's its own texture, it is not borrowing from existing things, you can't throw this into a genre even if you tried, except just under the, the incredibly nebulous genre that is Electronica. And and so to, to harp on these little things right here, they're, I like that they're independent, I like that they reinvent themselves and even when they seem constant for some reason I like that because she's been doing that very consistently as one of her compositional tools that when she introduced a certain loop it it, it remains a thing for just about as long and, and both uh, me and Matt had this experience with this that, that it remains its own thing for just about as long as it would take you to say mm, maybe that's getting repetitive before it finally just shifts it up maybe even just slightly just subtly and that to me is once again the mark of a great composer because it you can't have too much of a good thing you probably know that old expression well i think she's writing that line and she loves writing it to keep you invested as long as as long as you can be uh enjoyment wise then i guess i'm just on the other side of the line for right. me too in this case and just like in Nautilus in in track 1 it was a little bit too far of that line i i i was stepping over it 15, 20 seconds, 30 seconds earlier than you two were. Well, also you earlier, uh, just since you mentioned uh, some harmonies or the way it harmonizes with the music, there are actually uh, harmonies in the vocals later on when you get to the chorus because I believe she's doubling herself here. This is when she repeats certain lines in the verses over the dominant chorus, which is the title of the track, Say Something Helpful. And she just it, she glides along that simple phrase very beautifully, but yet you're still hearing the the verse work just just going in the background. It's just a different point of view from how you see. No need to get upset. I love that, and it it seems like each and every time they do this, it's it's pushing it up incrementally. Like overall, we're just working with like a six chord pattern here. Um, but then it seems to I don't I'm not sure if it modulates a hundred percent, but maybe it's just the experience of having a six chord pa pattern that is within its Itself, constantly progressing up in little little increments that makes this seem like such a a, a gloriously uplifting track. I, I can't quite describe it because clearly the lyrics are speaking of some unfinished business. Yeah, I mean it's we're only getting snippets, so it's hard to gauge the full breadth of what's being said, but for sure. I would agree with Steve's assessment, at least, of how the track feels. The, the one minor note I have about this track is it just, it felt quick. I don't know that it felt fleeting, per se. We get something like that a little later, but it did feel quicker, um, faster paced. Um, 
you know, and I think it was because of the rising nature of some of that chordal work and the way the vocals were that really kind of gave me that impression. Yeah. But all in all, I, I enjoyed it. I think here we're getting something at least on the the, the, the 10,000 foot view feels more succinct and steady compared to the previous tracks. It's not necessarily, but at least comparatively to the previous three, it feels more regular for her. And if this helps at all, just the last um, uh, bit of lyrics we were able to transcribe is, and if we cannot find some column, and if we cannot find some solid common ground, might just have to leave it. Turn down the speakers, because I don't care if we're not finished here. So, <laughs> the funny thing is, it almost seems to go back on itself. Like, yeah. well, we might just have to leave it if we're not, you know, kind of like what we're doing right now. Like, agree to disagree, John. <laughs> but then she comes back and says, well, turn down the speakers, because I don't care if we're not finished here, which seems to suggest that it's going to come right back again. It's a very strange, and obviously this is just snippets. I don't profess to understand the full point of what's she's saying I think it's meant to be taken within the within the context of of pop it's it's enjoyable and speaking of enjoyable the next track our type might be my favorite track on the album so it's our type for those yeah. not in the know is the name of a popular racing game back in the day I don't know if they still make new R types a side-scrolling yeah. shoot-em-up arcade game produced by Irem in 1987 yeah it's it's not a racing game per se it's like a it, it, it's a, a vehicle based shooter it it's intense yeah arcade games um <laughs> but I will say that the way the track starts with a kind of fuzzy flicker, Steve compared it to the kind of sound you would hear when a fluorescent bulb flickers. Like yeah, when kind it's of a just buzz. about to go, beep, but beep, it's still beep, lingering. Beep, beep. And, and then over that, you hear this, this thump. I was actually genuinely terrified after about 30 seconds of this. Um, the bass begins, and it sounds like the power is trying to come back on. Uh, and then later on, the, the trance beat takes over, and I feel like maybe some of that, you know, the, the terrifying quality had kind of left here. I'm less terrified, but here it starts, uh, John compared it to like the chopping of a helicopter. That background whoosh of when it steadies out does level out to be yeah. more helicopter oriented or Overall, sort of it, like wind, like uh, maybe wind turbines or something like that. The I'm going to throw sound out one more here, expect. one more here, which I think we're all going to agree and maybe maybe all listeners as well, and that is a kind of gallop. Yeah. That's the way this, I mean, this it, track it, feels once it, it really has a settles, once yeah. it settles. It, once we get to that point where it does really settle, which is, you know, around the minute mark where it really settles into itself, it feels like you're moving through a landscape. It's, this is the first time I'm really getting it's a, like this, 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 a, a, an intense and scenery. A, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and it's just that. It's just what my voice is doing and not the snap. <laughs> right. And the whole track, though, starts to build up an approach. And I think that's the only way I can really talk about this. Because the texture itself starts deviating from what it's already established. And it starts getting grander. More things come in. There's a... a a heavy rising tone and it's it's almost flute like clarinet like and it's it builds 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 but it doesn't build by adding much extra instrumentation it's just a it's single just thing adding it's complexity scale to what's runs arpeggios it's just going wild at this point but then the funny thing is even this is only you know temporary because eventually all those strip away and it starts getting colored by other electronic flourishes which then eventually become the dominant force all at once in fact at about uh, two minutes and three seconds but once again I'm going back to the old rule the chord changes I think are kind of the dominant feeling in this piece which is a little bit abstract until um, until I think phase two fa yeah, yeah phase two phase if you two. want to call it that obviously we were comparing it to well it's called R-Type and you were thinking about the video game setting so it's yeah. abstract but you still feel like there's intensity here you're driving you're running you're moving and you yeah. can just keep it that simple but 
that starts becoming a little bit more dire and a little bit more serious around 2 minutes and 32 seconds when we introduce straight up rock here. It, it's completely intense and I mean that all the way down to the fiber of my being. It, it's primal. I actually felt like I was in the movie Running Man at this point. It's, it's a fight to the death or at least trying to outpace death. The, at first you get the punk drum just hammering out on the upbeat, which doesn't last too long. It, it eventually cuts out, otherwise it would get annoying. Um, but you still get to live here in this intense uh, dash for a while. What we got prior to this shift it is a cityscape. It's a lot of sharp edges, especially with when the MIDI really starts becoming that. a major component. It's bright. It's sunny. And then it flips. It becomes nighttime. It becomes... Rainy, dark, midnight, the tonal shift is great, and it's not just in the guitar work, it's not just in the drums, it's the ideas that were there previously. The MIDI sound, the, that tonal sound is still present, and it shows up every once in a while. And it's little bright lights that shine off of the windows that are now darkened. Mm -hmm. It's your headlights sweeping across a, a corner as you take it a little bit too hard, a little bit too fast, you just get the flashes uh, that, uh, across the cityscape. That imagery is, is, is dead on as to what I feel along with this like 2 minute 32 seconds mark onward. It's just, it's it's not just a matter of being, of feeling intense, it's not that simple, it really is a, a, a sensation. It's probably more environment heavy than at any other point on the album, which always tries to be a little bit enigmatic. I always try to say it's 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 new, it's fresh, it's a new environment. This is trying to at least introduce something familiar to you while still trying to introduce something new on the album for the album. Yeah, it definitely feels like a very distinct setting in all of those moments. And then it feels like, you know, uh, uh, towards the outro part of the song, we feel like we get out of the city because it starts to move back towards the brighter stuff, but the elements of the darker stuff has not left. It's like the rain is behind you, but not completely Exactly. Gone. This would be like the penultimate leg of this track, where uh, a, a really boxy waveform kind of takes over and, and is is overtaken then by these these triplets with it, which then change up the rhythm and we finally thrash out sometimes two three changes in such a short span of time i admit it this is a pretty impulsive outro as far as uh just the end is concerned as we go into the outro itself but it's you know it's risk music is always risks and i personally like that it gets more chaotic here because i'm pretty much already accustomed to that being her her style yeah well, the breakout of the city, that, that flip from the midnight scape into the brighter suburbs, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how else to term it because it still contains a lot of the, quote, city ideas I've already explained. A lot yeah, of the, the boxy the, the waveform is still very yeah. harsh. It's very unsettling in a way, yeah, but it is lighter. It's, it's 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 row house after row house after row house after row house in my ears, but the the that final outro, that very impulsive outro, it's it's the the last quarter mile. It's if we're racing here, if we're having that experience, that intensity, it's that last little instant you know, quick time event before the boss is destroyed. It's that last little bit before you're done. The frantic nature of it, and the fact that it it harkens back to it, but doesn't really replicate the city does a lot to show the integration of the music that's going on right here. This is the kind of track that really makes me bemoan how much we overuse the word visceral. Yeah. Because I wish it were reserved for pieces like this. I wouldn't actually use the word visceral until the outro. Of course you were going to disagree the, with me there. He, he was, of course he was going to. The outro is what's so emotionally impactful, and it's is that's where I'm seeing the steel melting as it's going too fast, hitting the wall, you know, really starting to, to decompose. But... 
it is very imaginative. It's it's very provocative to to my eye, but it's not quite there. I admit it was taking steep steps up as of you know two minutes thirty two seconds, but yeah. but I, I was pretty much in in environment from the very beginning. So I don't just I I don't agree hundred um, percent. But well, where have we on this album? Let's go to track six, Dowager. A widow with a title or property derived from her late husband, or a dignified elderly woman. Thank you. I feel like describing these things. I, That's such curious titles. So, the, this, what I love about the the notes here and the kind of uh, sort of strings that we get in the beginning of this track is that they're they're drawn out and as if you're kind of long bowing a cello or or I guess a viola or violin. But, but in a way that feels almost a little distorted because it's obviously electronic here or influenced by electronic here. Right. Well, it's first of all also much much slower track by contrast to what sure. we've had. Um, and the bass line is generally just, uh, I think, it, yeah, it was using a string, like maybe a cello or something, like a one down to a seven, uh, down to a four, up to a five. The bass line, totally, uh, the chord changes are C sharp minor, B major, F sharp minor, and G sharp minor. I'd actually call this, uh, with the, just honing on the strings, I would call it a pass Sicaglia if it were actually in six, but I think it actually does go to six later, although I don't think it's in six yet. But obviously we're in this, you know, C sharp minor environment. We're just entrenched here, and the fact that you have that minor four and the minor five, you know, where we're actually like a the five chord here, the, the major five would actually give you a place to shift and break out of that, but she doesn't want to do that. This is where she wants to stay. She introduces the minor five and it just sounds very kind of kind of dour at this point, and that's not to play upon on the word dowager. Uh, but this chord pattern pretty much dominates all the way up until a minute 25 and maybe even beyond. But then we get the guitars. Beyond that point, I actually thought that this was taking a turn for more of a post-rock track. Well, and I was enjoying it for it. Well, yeah, and I think what adds to really that kind of post-rock vibe are the vocals we get here, because they're unlike vocals we'd had before on the rest of the record. Um, there's male and female vocals, but the male tends to dominate most of the track. And these male vocals, I would swear, if I could find the information in order to confirm it, that this is Owen Pallet here. I don't know <laughs> that it is, but the, I mean, the moment, his high attack on this note when he comes in singing, sounds exactly like stuff we heard on his record when we reviewed it. And I will so. say, when you brought up Owen Pallet, just as like kind of an emotional reference point for this album, probably the closest I could come up with, at least within our reviewed Pantheon. Yeah, and and I absolutely get it here, and I love these vocals, because it's no secret I love Owen Pallets, and so that really hooked me the moment they came in. I was intrigued by the intro, but the vocals really pulled me in. Check out Owen Pallets in Conflict, episode 119. For being so high attack, it was kind of demoralized. It was very depressed, the vocals themselves. This is describing a very dour situation, a very sad situation going on right here. (laughs) Dour (laughs) <laughs> that when the break happens and the chorus steps in and we get the repetition of what the dowager's doing, what she's she's planning, she's trying to escape, she's looking for freedom. I love the fact that that break allows a lot of the venom that had been kind of established in the verses to be sucked out, to be removed, to show a little bit of, of, of hope along the edges of what's going on here. It was it was a great musical response to the story that's what's going on. So the dowager plans her escape. So the dowager takes to the sky. So the dowager plays by herself. It's really, really depressing. Yeah. But it's the presentation and it's so uplifting when it's no no it really <laughs> I don't know about is that. uplifting when so the dowager plans her escape i mean the, it's almost a proclamation the first time it comes out but i didn't feel that in the music i felt like this was very mm, 
It was very dim, and because it was such a slower track, you know, the, the rousing points on this album have been when she, you know, thrashes out for the ends of certain tracks. Here, it's uh, it's more of a story, and I don't think a terribly happy one. Well, I mean, but the track does rouse towards the second half. When we get to the second presentation of the the verse and the chorus, you get it kind of goes up a bit, and so. It sounds like it's trying to put a positive spin on it. I hear what you're saying lyrically, but it gets jauntier about halfway through the track. All right, yeah, it's from the, like the halfway point on, I admit. But in the, in the earlier part, portion, I still thought it was pretty pretty barren. In fact, there was even a very stripped-down moment, around 2 minutes 21 seconds. I've actually never heard anything as stripped-down as this, because it mixing everything stripped, it's down to just this pure, clean, unreverbized synth. And maybe a chime alongside it? And that was it. And the funny thing is, I didn't get much of a feeling, of, of, of any kind of a feeling, out of this little transition section. This was this was extremely enigmatic, and maybe it served more of a similar function uh, to what we got back in Scrimshaw, in the part that we disagreed on in the middle of that track. But then to follow that, I will admit, it gets... It gets deeper, but in doing so, it gets much warmer, like on the lower end here. And well, in getting warmer, we introduce more of a positive thing. We even change the rhythm at 2 minutes 50 seconds. Uh, we turn the 6-8 the here into kind of a swing 4-4, four, four, just superimposing the 4 right over the 6, so it gives it much more much more movement. This, this aspect is also explaining the story of now she's taking action. From that first chorus, now we're getting action in this verse. We're getting the Maybe. idea that she's uh, actually doing what she wants to do. She's approaching that idea of escapism, that that idea of finally getting to the next area. That when the next chorus comes in, it has that same sort of break. It keeps it contrary to what's going on previously. I like the way these choruses are so contrary to what's going on previously that by the end of it... She escapes this tragedy. In fact, the the very end, when it's just pure beat, she's gone. She's finally gone from the track. She's gone from her situation of of depression, of sadness, that I love I love this journey that I was taken on. Yeah, now that you mention it, I mean, like, the lyrics that I read earlier, so the Dowager plans her escape, so the Dowager takes to the sky, that's the chorus, so that's the, that's the culminating moment, so obviously it's bound to be a little more positive there. Earlier on, the lyrics are uh, very ambiguous, something like, stealing the ashes you'll no longer need, and then just these echoes away, away. This is earlier in the track. Um, something, a, a tower that will never fall away, away so far to fly that's a that line in here so far to fly as if it's completely out of her grasp uh we know watching the story from a mile apart away away goodbye goodbye we cannot find our way to fly these are not happy lyrics um but yeah it does end on you know uh she takes to the sky except the fact that she plays by herself i guess that's a little a little lonely i mean it's a hint of sadness i think that's that's ever present in the track but it does seem to end on a more positive spin all in all it reminds me of the emotionale of a lot of owen pallet tracks did on his album in conflict which i mean the title itself of the album tells you that there's some give and take with that and so this is why I think that mixed with the kind of post-rock sound that's happening here is what reminded me of him the most. But again, it's that voice and that timbre and that tone really kind of hammers that home. I think that 
um, story-wise, this track might be the strongest to give a narrative, uh, obviously. Well, oh, yeah, even... Because there are lyrics. But, no, well, even, no, but that even without the lyrics. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We have plenty of songs that we've loved that have a strong narrative with no lyrics, so I refute that. I think that it has one of the strongest narratives because of the way the music mixes with the lyrics. But if, yes. uh, Well, then that may be the first time that me and you are actually disagreeing. Uh, me and you, Matt, that is. <laughs> and I'm on Matt's uh, side on this one. No, because here's the thing. On this album, I mean, just to speak of instrumental tracks, you know, pieces that have have uh, narratives to them, I felt that earlier on much stronger, like in this album itself. Because musically, I don't actually don't think this the music here is as strong. I still like it. I still think it's it's wonderful and, and you know and bubbly and all that stuff. Um, it's still beautiful, but it's just not as striking as earlier. And striking things are what present me with narrative. I mean, the the only thing that I will start to admit, it, it starts to get better when you get more toward like the end of the threes, and I mean like the end of the three minute mark, 340, 350. It starts getting a little bit atonal here, and this is where it starts to kind of match the theme, and I do really like the outro really at the tail end, four minutes 40. I think this did completely lift itself up, but it was kind of just trudging along until then. Still beautiful, but just trudging. Not 100% like, you know, bringing out the character that is here. It, it highlights the vocals by being a little bit mellower because you couldn't do the earlier Anna Meredith stuff, you know, over these vocals or they would never shine through. Eh, or you, or they could, because I think Taken did that. In which case, I think Taken is the argument but, against it if you are just counting lyrics. But, but I would say Scrimshaw but also But I'm not did just it. counting lyrics, I'm counting how he's singing too, which is completely different from how they sang at Taken. It's a silly thing. It's a silly argument anyway, because really, if you're just saying narrative, you kind of need to go with <laughs> lyrics. And it's an incredibly subjective thing if you're talking about um, instrumentals, period. I guess so, so maybe we would just need to use another word. I guess. Maybe I'll Boo just have to agree to disagree, Steve. <laughs> oh, God, this is the day I for that. I think you're right, Matt. <laughs> Thanks, John. That's not helpful. Well, sort of it's helpful. <laughs> oh, shut down already. Anyway. Track seven. The Vapors, or The Vapors. I'm sorry. That was terrible. I won't ever do that again. No, yeah, you're do. a liar. You're going to do that you're again. You're going to do it. Sure, you I will. did it before you'll do it again. Uh, that's true. Um, so this, this starts with this kind of high-attack, screechy guitar work that like, is extremely muted. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I don't know, it's really tough to describe. I mean, I described the instrumentation here at the start of the track because they all seem to be a little all over the place, starting with that guitar that I just mentioned. It feels kind of fidgety almost, and Steve, I'm sure after this we'll get into the more details of some of that instrumentation, but I just feel like overall the impression I'm getting from the moment this track starts is something someone fidgeting or someone not able to sit still. I agree with that. In general, I, I've been wary of the reference game here yeah. uh, in this album, but I did have a pretty direct comparison. Just as you referenced Owen Pallet, this rock guitar felt kind of mathy. Okay. Mathy yeah. as in math rock, and it brought me back to the probably the only uh, math rock band that we've done, which John brought on in episode 62, and that was The Chronicles of Marnia by Marnie Stern. It had a lot of these like high-pitched sounding uh, guitars in it that are playful, but kind of, yeah, fidgety. And it's, I guess, the best way to describe them in terms of emotion and, and, and feeling. They're just so obsessed with that little pattern, the, the, the low tones, and then the little flourish and then the low tones, and then the little flourish. And the guitars just do that over and over and over and over and over again. And then there's the integration of the shorter low tones that kind of just every once in a while throw out an arm, throw out a leg, throw out an exclamation on top of this very repetitive, very 
focused pattern that it feels like it's just that little explosion of emotion showing yeah. through on the rest of the track. It's it's the the, the deeper notes, the yeah, lower the real, tones. Yeah, and on top of all this, you're getting other things like uh, single drums coming in every once in a while. It's a lot of little elements shaping this very rhythmic guitar that's so muted that's so forefront it's a weird combination of what's going on right here that I'm just entranced because every once in a while everything else starts overpowering this rhythmic guitar but you can still hear it without actually hearing it you know the rhythm it becomes so ingrained in this track that you don't even need that guitar anymore to know exactly what notes being played at any time yeah and that bass was so curious because it was kind of like a bellow it didn't come across like a the bass the instrument it was it was a bellow but it was short very brief it doesn't really do much it doesn't hold it's just a barren bass line like a giant harmless ogre figure well what, uh, it's funny you say ogre because i felt like this track was definitely the behemoth of the album being over six minutes long <laughs> well. but what i want to say is what followed this was what was really interesting to me is that even though the rhythm and and the drums do get to be kind of steady what they start to do is something that typically in songs when the drums kind of ramp up you expect them to go into a drum solo or go into a different beat but this song does a drum tease i want to call it where after these moments that john was describing the drum kind of builds up as if it's going to go into something else and then goes right back to it and i thought yeah. that was interesting because you it's setting an expectation that doesn't get fulfilled and then repeatedly doesn't get fulfilled which is is what a tease is essentially totally and then there's the glissandos that show up the strings just bending on top of everything else that yeah there's there's no soloing there's no soloing in any instrument this is pure comping off of the initial guitar rhythm and, and the is, chords themselves and which, the, yeah and the chords themselves which also which is, have an interesting character to them which maybe also lend to the fidgety feel I, I've generally have been ascribing most of these enigmatic emotions to the chords in the end because I believe that's where most of the soul comes from and yet nobody talks about chords chords are so fun aren't they sure sure F minor, G minor, E flat major, uh, really, really positive sound, lifts it up on that F E flat major, and then down to E diminished, and that's where I think it starts to sound a little bit cagey, a little bit, that's the fidgety part, because that's where we round it back to F minor, and that's, I think, what's kept this this generally fidgety, enigmatic feel in the beginning here. Right. Um, but then we change. And then start transition. Oh, yeah. I love this start transition, though, because the, the tapping guitar riff is is starts getting played off a really paced techno oriented idea it's an incredible combination not sure if that things. was a synth or a guitar this is a synth though it's uh, two something. minutes two minutes 18 seconds hello prog yeah. and what a figuration <laughs> you have brought us i love this i love this so much it's just it's it's a one of those you know it's a long loop once again yeah. i love long loops because loops are boring anyway so obviously <laughs> here it, this is my kind of electronica um and just, it's something that, you know, physically only maybe Ray Manzarek could accomplish. Sure. Ray Manzarek of the Doors, of course. Right, right, right. I, I feel like that the, that this progression that the track takes, though, is really interesting in contrast to the rest of the record also. Because we haven't really heard anything like this yet. Not to this extent, anyway. And what's really interesting is that as this behemoth, as I like to call it, continues, we get these sounds that are while reminiscent of other things we've heard or in a different evolution, like these string horns, as we call it's, them. It's where reminiscent it's like, to Nautilus, the yeah. very beginning of the album. Like, we're kind of starting to come context. full circle. This is around 326. It, the whole part B, the whole prog section here, this this little interlude that we've had, is completely interrupted by these synth brass just punches. Literally, just punching you in the face. I called it synth brass... Uh, uh, Matt called it synth, synth string or brass strings or, or something. 
something like that. None of those it's brass. It is brass. It is just brass, but I believe it's the actually sign horns. Sense. The sine wave but it, horns. It's like the invading. They, ray, it. they, 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 they come up, they come down. It's setting a whole new they don't, pace They don't the do track. that. It's, just, it's not even a sine wave at all. It's just complete punches. Bump, 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 bump. And they no, kind the of climb a little bit. And then they come back down and they go back up again. All right, kind of sort. But that's, thank you. That's thank not you. a sine wave. Well, no, barely, 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 barely. Yes. It has more, it, it's more accented Rise than I fall. would describe if anything that's in a sine wave form. Uh, but they just invade their way into this track and, and just hacking away at you. I'm, I'm out of analogies. I just love this effect and it's totally brought me back to the feel and the revelry uh, sensation of Nautilus, but this time with more urgency. Well, what I like also is what that part gives way to. It's one of my favorite moments probably on the record, and it's what I called the moment of many keys. Essentially, it feels like <laughs> someone going to town on a keyboard and just playing all of these notes, but in an almost comical cartoon Yeah, there way. was some piercing following that where I actually felt like the, the overall volume of this piece had been mixed much, much louder. Yeah. Like, just if you listen at steady volume, this is gonna, you might actually it, have to turn it down a little bit. Shifts, yeah. And uh, that was bold. And it's using an element from the prog section, or it sounds like it, but almost backwards, almost like right. a an intake of breath punctuation in everything. And then it starts integrating, integrating this, integrating that. We get a hi-hat. First, I might be the first hi-hat on the entire album. I don't know. If it's a physical hi-hat, probably. I, I, I just can't tell at this point. But it's a lot of complexity building up, building up, building up. And then we get a... A MIDI outro, a whole new shift into MIDI re uh, replicating and adding in drum solo to the entire well, I think it went back to, from piece. like 544 on, it brought back the, the prog synth figuration. Um, yeah, but yeah. with a completely different setting and the drums, the drums. Oh, I love the percussion. Yeah, it actually part. brought in a real drum set here. And Not it was just like a drum unmistakable. set, like a almost full-fledged solo for the drums. A little bit, a little bit. A little more I, curtailed than that, but it was absolutely, it stood out. I, I just think that maybe the brass in this track is so much more of an identifiable emotion that, you know, we know it's a revelry of sorts, but it's what is coming to not just define, you know, the, the track, but the album as a whole. I, I feel like I am being summoned to do something and I don't know what, and that's a little bit terrifying, you know? It's like only she knows, and she, she's got the key. I love it. The, yeah, the way this track drives and then culminates, I think, is... Probably what kept it this behemoth, as I put it, as feeling overwhelming. It, it, there were moments that felt overwhelming, but in a good way, kind of washing over you almost. Contrary to some of my earlier critiques about ideas being clipped, this felt like everything was given a chance to really culminate and breathe. That the very abrupt nature of the transitions that flowed amazingly well, but the abrupt nature allowed you to really section off, well, this is this section where I'm going to feel this. This is this section where I'm going to feel it in a different way. I love the way they, they transition from one to the next to the next to the next and just show different facets of a very similar emotion throughout the entire piece. And speaking of breathing, that's what we do in track eight with the track Honeyed Words. So this is, I think, the breather that the album needed, uh, considering it is much slower, much more pared down than previous tracks. It's mostly just made of two or three components, all built off of these sliding, just these, these glissandos, pitch bends. Very slight, very subtle, but it, it becomes a whole 
feature unto itself. And what's interesting about these pitch bends is typically, at least in the YouTube generation, when you hear a lot of pitch, pitch bends or something that's mostly composed of pitch bends, you think of a theremin, because theremin does that yes. a lot. So in the beginning of this track, I really thought that it was a theremin doing these pitch bends. I have question marks because I'm honestly not sure. And on saying that, I think you might be right that there was something here that at least, you know, if it's not a theremin, it's something in synth that is meant to sound like a theremin since it can be reproduced. I mean, right. the theremin, what is this theremin but a, an early synth? The first synth, in fact. Right. And what I like about these pitch bends is that it kind of, from the very beginning, gives this almost forlorn feel in the warping of the of the, the notes. And, you know, the way that they drag it is kind of like walking shoulder slumped with your arms at your side. Exactly. The in-out, like, expand-contract structure of this track. Um, the, just like a minor third and then inward to a unison, expanding sometimes up to a six. I love, like, the, the forlorn nature in this. It really gets serious around uh, 1 minute 28 seconds. It, it's, it goes from feeling somewhat more, like, just open and... and not satisfied, but at least relaxed in the very beginning. Perhaps sad, but relaxed. But now really experiencing the forlorn nature upwards of a minute 30. And then uh, the funny thing is after these electronic pulses, which themselves kind of slide around, it, it kind of goes backwards. It goes back to the beginning, maybe even further downward by diminishing itself in volume around like 2 minutes 15. It's just... It's 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 beaten. It's beaten by the world around it. Like the last track, it just battered it into submission. Well, it's funny you say beaten because I feel like it it, it sort of gets higher in it some does of get the later. tones. And and when it does, it feels like the track is getting more delicate too. After that return to the beginning, when it does move and get higher, it feels way more delicate. Like it's more fragile. Exactly. And and I think that speaks also to that the, the deeper hole we're falling into almost. And I mean. I made this illusion off the air, and we've done this before with title tracks, but the term like honeyed words, like you're sprinkling honey on your words, like to make them sweeter than they are, or to honey, you know, to sweeten them up, sugarcoat things, if you would. You know, when you're sugarcoating, trying to tell somebody something, you're making it sweeter than the thing actually is. I think that this song conveys that in the way that pitch bends are, are, are manipulated to convey that feeling. I think that is an extremely accurate representation of what's going on right here. Me too. The combination of the string and the synth and the way the synth and string have a point and counterpoint going on, very, very solid, very, like, instance, moment. A word I like to throw around, and Steve brought this off air, and I see the parallel between the two. Evergreen. You mean seeing the track itself as, an, as a moment? As an incident, as a there moment. There are moments within that moment, but I'm not past, like, visualizing the track as that single thing. Um, Evergreen, of course, is off of the migration by Scale the Summit, which we did back in episode 67, which is otherwise this, this you know, grand kind of proggy post-rock album, but which just has this one track, a very short, like, minute-something track that is entirely composed of bass. And just the bass, and using bass harmonics, it's very pared down, very simple, just tries to convey convey a simple emotion. And this is in the same ballpark uh, compared to the album as a whole, which obviously can be very busy, or might as well go off the term, maximalist. But yet, also, this track, I think, conveys some complexity, owing to the theme that Matt just said. Because in Honeyed Words, I feel like that's presenting an idea that's very tough to get around. Someone says, you know... Someone's trying to satiate you with honeyed words. I feel like that's going to leave you with a lot of mixed emotions, which each and every curve and in and out or expand contract motion of the strings here reflects. That said, <laughs> excellent description. My personal opinion is I'm not a fan of this track. I don't 
like the representation that's going on right here. I think it's accurate to the idea. Don't get me wrong. That that in and of itself is is solid. But honeyed words. I don't. I don't really like where it's coming from. The actual listening aspect of it is not enjoyable to my ears. You it's, don't enjoy the glissandos. No, no. At the end of the day, the glissandos of what's going on and the comping between the two. I understand the technicality behind it, and that full respect. It's amazing that technicality, that play between the two ideas so fluidly. But the presentation and the enjoyment factor is just not there for me. Yes, it's it's in many ways a, a sister track to Evergreen, but it is not that unified moment that I fell in love with on Evergreen. Here, it feels cold. It feels like it doesn't care what I think about it. It feels like it doesn't want to be approached by me, to be critiqued by me. As I previewed earlier, this may be a question of taste because I personally... I love glissandos, and it is rare that you find an entire piece built off them. And in that sense, yes, it is asking, it is begging just a little from the listener, a little leap of faith, I think, for this particular concept. But I don't think it's out of left field. I don't think this is avant-garde by any stretch. I think it's it's actually there's it's complex from a composer standpoint, but it's also this this beauty in its simplicity that it only uses just a few tones, and it reaches so many little finer point moments within this that I don't think I can just dismiss this entire track as just oh it's a single thing it's a, it's a single thing that just exists on its own separate and apart from the album. It it's got an arc, a very tangible, palatable arc. I don't think it's too simple or too complicated or anything like that. I don't think it exists outside the album. I think that in and of itself, the idea, the presentation, the actual listening and enjoyment aspect for me isn't there. It's not music to my ears at the end of the day. It's just an expression. And I understand that certain expressions of an instrument in, in glissando, like you can make a violin say happy, sad. We've talked about this before where the presentation, especially in the string area of instruments, allows you to replicate certain feelings, and I see those feelings being replicated here. I just don't think this track, at the, uh, for me, wants to be critiqued, wants to exist in my mind as, as something I approach and I feel. I just don't feel this track. I'm not connecting. It's a big, it's a very cold disconnect for me with this track. Well. 192 episodes and we hit a wall. John's on one side, I'm on the other, and it doesn't look like this is going to change anytime soon. But I do want to say just one point on, on the coldness that you brought up. Because I do think that even though you you say cold from a perspective of, you know, well, you're on one side of the track, it's on another. But I do think it the emotion here in the concept of honey word, honeyed words is coming through from a kind of coldness. And that is what it's trying to convey, which and I do feel, and maybe you don't. I, I, I understand that. That's actually why I use the word cold. Okay. And... I'm standing on the wall between you two, which is why I wanted to connect this earlier. Um, Moderate, Matt. Yeah. That's what you do. I'm within spitting distance of both of you from the top of the wall, looking down on you. Um, no. Um, so, John, you want to team up again? <laughs> he's, trying to figure, <laughs> he's trying to figure out which side is greener. Actually, it's not true. You're Well, I can't agree with John about not f connecting or engaging or feeling. I, I can't agree with that. However, I can extend an olive, olive branch to say how I can understand how he's feeling, because... 
I don't know that I enjoy this track. This track, to me, is reminiscent of what I got out of the Paper Chase, which is an early album that um, the Wall Street Players had brought us, in the fact that this song makes me feel exactly what it's supposed to, and that uncomfortability, that, that those bends, the, the, the emotion that it's pulling through. The point and counterpoint. I'm yeah. engaged. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I am interested and absolutely drawn to. And I think some of the more depressing, horrifying, bizarre, you know, uplifting, all these moments in life can do that to you, where you don't necessarily enjoy it, but you're absolutely stuck within it and engaged by it. Well, all right, I'm still, I can't come down to that. I'm still on my side 100% because this is not the paper chase, which we were all pretty much in agreement that, yeah, it was kind of keeping us away a little bit. I'm not saying that. But that... But but it is this particular track is not that kind of experience. The the emotion is there, and furthermore, the enjoyment and just the the palatability of it is absolutely one hundred percent there. And it may be just due to my I like glissandos. Maybe that's it. And in that case, this is just the ultimate satiation of that particular propensity. Um, but I will I do think this culminates in one particular moment, even within the song. Just to talk about the last specific, and that is at two minutes forty four seconds. This whole track raises up into this uncanny ephemeral mountaintop of just pure hope and joy. But the implication, I think, considering the earlier stuff, is that there's still a lot of forlornness there, which is why I don't think it's a leap at all for the theme in question, um, because of the fact, honeyed words, you know, you're bound to take that with a grain of salt and leave you feeling very, very, very mixed as you part. Somebody sugarcoats something, you know, says their parting words with, with, you know, a honeyed quality. And, well, there are times you want to believe them. There are times you want to think they're lying. There are times you want to think it's it's absolutely the truth objectively, and you have to take that for what it is. I think it's an incredibly complex feeling, and I think, one, again, we're, I'm there 100%. And that's why the joy that was brought at the very end, you know, that it was wrapped up for good reason. I, and I couldn't agree more. I think that what I was trying to say essentially is that I'm not sure where I f- sit as far as how I feel about this track, but I know how it makes me feel, which are not the same thing. Sure. And and, and that's that's where I'm coming from. All right. We, uh, we unpacked that if ever there was a track to be unpacked. Track nine, Last Rose. So... The sense I'm getting here, especially following Honeyed Words, is kind of, this feels like a farewell or it's saying goodbye. I don't know if necessarily walking away from someone or something, but I get this kind of, the the beauty in this track kind of is like a, a positive lament, you know, something that's positive with a hint of sadness, like you would when saying goodbye to something, whether it's a death or deciding to walk away from a moment or a person. Which would make it a, a good follow-up, but of course it does use completely different instrumentation. Here sure. you're uh, just like these quickly hammering strings, just kind of two chords mostly that we're working with in the very beginning, also joined by these kind of watery clicks with Cha, uh, Matt compared to like a like a bone xylophone. <laughs> it's it pretty fe- interesting. It, it felt like the idea of if you in the cartoons when a skeleton bangs on another skeleton's rib cage to play it like a xylophone, yes. it's that kind of a feel to me. Wood in a little bit on the hollower side, yes. something like that. Love our 30s yeah. cartoons. Um, <laughs> I do. Uh, but then it kind of modulates. It goes a little bit lower. Uh, it, it's kind of tough to say, or at least that wasn't what I was focused on at the moment. I was focused more on the vocals here. This is our fourth and final vocal track, and it's just 
and a Meredith this time. No, no would be, uh, you know, but probably not uh, Owen Pallet. But yet, I I think I like this on the same level as I enjoyed uh, the previous tracks with with just her vocals. I mean, again, I love the lilt. I love the really the really high pitched but slightly you know adorable quality of it. And it's more about the phrasing here that I think I, I it may be one of my favorite vocal tracks on the album. The phrasing is just once again I'll go back to that word ephemeral. And I, I think that's the that's the point here. The 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 music is not a hundred percent in this track, only because it once again doesn't do all of the crazy things which she would be want to do. But for the sake of a vocal, more pop friendly track, she pairs the rest down, and the vocals become the point. Well, okay. I don't feel like I'm there. It takes until the chorus where I really hit the point where I say the vocals are the focus because they feel a little bit lackluster, and I I'm. Compared to the other parts of this album that have her singing, they feel a little lackluster before that, before the first chorus steps in. Because when the percussion comes in, and this was the big part, when the beat really steps in and starts working with what's going on right there, it feels like it's too at odds with what she's saying and how she's singing for me to really get on board with that idea. It takes a bit. It builds up a little bit. That When the first chorus comes in, and everything really does culminate, you get the major shift, that's that's where I agree with you. All right. And I'm going to be completely contrary and not agree or disagree with either of you and just bring up a completely separate point, because, you know, why not? Um, Fair game. I, I think that, you know, uh, while I enjoyed this track and I agree it is, I will agree slightly and just say I do agree in the fact that it does feel more pop-friendly and more pushed towards the vocals. I will say that I had trouble really investing because this feels very fleeting. This is one of the shortest tracks on the record and I feel like it just comes and goes really quick and I didn't have enough time to enjoy it. Um, I think I enjoyed, you know, I didn't dislike it for, shay, for per se, but it's definitely the first track where at the forefront of my mind I'm just going, well, I wanted more. Like, there was definitely more here. I felt like it was fleeting. I agree. Yeah, exact page, and that's my big critique of it. For for what I just said, forget forget that for a moment, and take the ideas that show up, like the guitar and bass. When that steps in, they were they were nearly perfect for the moment they step in, and then they drop out seconds later. It feels like everything is just compressed and and needs to breathe, needs it to feels like needs the to song be fleshed is... out and culminated and fulfilled and all the tag words I'd like to use. It feels like the song I... was just getting started when it ended. In fact, the way it ends, it just feels sudden. I have an interesting theory about this track because of one of those quotes that I read in the intro uh, where she said, I've got quite the pretentiousometer running. Um, meaning that she feels that certain ideas, you know, once they've played out, she really wants to, you know, ditch Just them. move on, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's not trying to, you know, be that kind of composer, especially not in this project. So it, sure? it makes me wonder that maybe she felt like her time for the pace that I had been used to with this album, that she had successfully brought me on board with, where everything generally does stick around for a little while, just about to the point where you think it's about, you know, and about to get old, and then it, it changes. And then here, it was the first time where I was like, no, no, indulge, do your thing, do that Anna Meredith thing, and expand on these ideas, and she didn't do it. But it makes me wonder if that that quote maybe played a, a, a portion in this where she felt like the time for this album to experiment is done and passed and now it's time for more concise statements because that was the exact thing that she said she said uh, I'd rather be I'd rather be braver bolder you know can you be simpler at any time and that was what this al this track was designed to do in context of the album and if you want to talk about 
you know, clipped brevity, we get chill. Track 10, the shortest track, if I'm not mistaken, at under three minutes. A minute 48. But also might be my favorite track on the album, and there's a few reasons why. Wait, first, chill, also a plant or a stooge, is a person who publicly helps or gives credibility to a person or organization without disclosing that they may have a close relationship with the person or organization. Interesting. It's chill. Okay. A cutout. Well, so th- th- this song starts with what feels like something kind of alien in the sci-fi kind of cliche sort of way, but but it ring rings of a darker side of Nautilus to me, you know. And what I like is that even though it's repeating on itself, it's doing it in a very different way that Nautilus did at the very beginning of the album. You describe the intro as like alien synth runs yeah, right. kind of. Yeah. MIDI again, but in a slightly off-putting kind of key because of the furious strings that show up. Right. Well, what I would say less MIDI only because it doesn't feel very electronic like video gamey, which is what I associate a lot of MIDI sounds with. However, I will agree that the frantic bowing definitely pulls it even more out of that. The frantic bowing that comes in I mean, it, it just gives this breath and intensity to the track. That it changes it away from, uh, yeah. from Alien, purely. And then the gritty, almost CPU-style MIDI comes in to overlay on top of these two things. It's it's clipped, it's sh- it's muffled, it's distorted. It feels like you're... Tonally, it's almost a- atonal. Um, yeah, it's, and- it's, that's where the more ominous, the more alien nature really shows up big and full force for me. Like, home for this track is that very uncomfortable place. Yeah. Which is why I'm sure it's not atonal, but, you know, just it's as good as anything here because it's just not, it's, it's, it doesn't really have a tangible home. But then, uh, then from here, I mean, once the drum work comes in and gets really intense, different from drums we've gotten before because these drums build and build and drive the entire song to a peak. The Though rhythm changes is... are her, another big motif on this album and I love I love whenever they occur. I mean, some people might say that they're impulsive, you know, because in general, God, how many rhythm, ch- honest rhythm changes do we ever come across when we're experiencing uh, albums here and walking well, through them? In general, we really don't experience a according, lot. According to me, a lot. You sometimes uh, make an error. In pre-production, and yeah. then in actual recording, they're all gone for some reason. Yeah. I don't know what, what happened to them. Well, but, I still oh, yeah. let's make the distinction, though. Tempo changes are sometimes what we're looking for, which are actually not there. And here, may still probably are not there. I wouldn't call them a tempo change, but it's a rhythm change, so you start counting them differently, which means that in your head, the tempo's different. And it's simple, though. That That's what's great about it. It's kick-snare. It's the back and forth between the two ideas that is just... The simplicity is what makes it so easy to follow along, yet hard to really distinguish. Because if you start replacing one with the other, you start transforming how everything is is worked together. This is this track is the definition of that of that word that I just discovered and I love maximalism. It's short, it's brief, and it's busy. And it's another track that has a great climax as the as the synth tones rise. Well, what what I don't overlook is that that build I'm talking about, where the drums just go bazanka, as I'm calling it, the technical term. It then pulls it back again and then does it again, but extends it a bit. And it gives this feel that as that build is happening more gradually the second time, it gives a circular nature to the outro of the track. Absolutely. It's that, very circular, very just, it's thrashing it in a circular way. It feels like it's way. folding over and over on itself, like it's you're dop- watching a dryer. It's a Doppler crescendo. That's the only <laughs> way Doppler, I can really yes. explain it. The, I'm, with the cir- I'm with the dryer analogy. No, Doppler crescendo. It, the <laughs> Doppler effect, it comes at you and then goes off, and then comes at you and goes off. That's, nah, that's it's a dryer. Nature. It's a GE. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost like uh, they're just fooling around with the volume to begin with, but everything else is culminating around it because we're getting a single MIDI note just 
playing off of that. It's a full drum set as opposed to the kick and snare that was just prior to it. It's it's a it's a crescendo that doesn't want to culminate. It feels and, like it's just going to wrap on itself over yeah. and over and over again, and then finally bursts. And that's why it this kind is of just my... plays out. I like how it just—it's like a popping pimple. I know it's gross, but it's a <laughs> no. Good you're analogy. absolutely right. It just—it keeps going until it bursts and can do no more, and then ends. And we're actually lockstep with imagery here on this. The, one. this the previous nice. track, while it felt too short and fleeting, here I felt it was the perfect length—the most perfect length I've ever heard on a track. I feel like the way it ends, just. It's just I couldn't ask for anything more. I enjoyed it. It ended. We're done. And on to the next thing. Which is so bizarre considering what I just said about Last Rose. Because it's like, all right, Last Rose may have kind of, not failed, but it it fell a little short on us because of that thing. Well, she didn't, you know, why didn't you expand? And yet it feels feels like that attempt, If because I'm just suspecting here, whatever attempt she was trying to do with Last Rose and trying to be more concise had, in the course of just one track, succeeded. Yeah. So now here, she's doing that and... Perfect. Yes, this is the time for brevity. Now I got to be contrary. I want this track to be longer. I want more of this track. No, oh, if, if this, I want this music. Like this was so great. I'm not saying this track should be longer. I want an album based off of this. Okay, track. that's different in that. I know. That I was point, getting around yeah, because I was getting around. I just have to be contrary from this, here. There. If this track went any longer, I felt like it wouldn't have had the impact it had. However, I could agree stylistically. Stuff like this, that I could was, listen that's to just more. So it's so interesting but, moment by moment. But also, I feel like more of this might lose its spark quickly. I think that the brevity of the track and the fact that it's an isolated moment on the album that's still attached to the album but still feels very much its own thing is what gives it the impact and power for me. And then we get the final track, Blackfriar, which... Blackfriars, plural. Plural, there's more than one. And then we get the final track, Blackfriars, which if we're talking about, you know, changing it up, this is actually the antithesis. This track is full glissando just just full glissando well the funny thing is we had that earlier but this is a little bit different this this particular string arrangement just kills me it kills me dead because you have these long tones first they're not yet you know glissandos they're they're suspending and then yes there's a glissando to the resolution it's not a constant uh, uh, it's not ex- a constant tonal not, shift. Not like what we like were that, getting yeah. earlier. Um, it's just a solid... Not like honeyed words. But but you have that long suspension, and it resolves. Then a long suspension, then it resolves. And then later, it does this a lot more melodically, but I'll get to that. First, you will have these little breathers. Little breathers, and this becomes probably the most fascinating thing about this track, because it makes it so much not, you know, even... Can't even come close to describing it first in chorus. It's just it's a piece, it's a composition, and this is how we have to discuss it. You have these little sections, call them A, and then it's interrupted by these transitions, or you could even say they're a B in their way, where everything just breathes, gets a lot softer. The first one we get is at 48 seconds, and here we just rock between a very soft lower note and then a very high note of the exact same pitch, I think, but octaves apart, and maybe on a harmonic. This is all violins here, right? And then we go back to the suspension resolution thing. Another A, an A prime. Um, a further A. It's it's it's. I would actually say it's more a B. If it it is replicating a lot of the mm, same ideas, but I think it, it was is. The same thing. It feels so much more flushed out in context. I don't actually consider it the same section, the same idea. It feels so much different in retrospect. 
this is actually something that I would say is closer to minimalism here mm -hmm. um, because it is. So, I mean, well, I could have said that earlier about honeyed words as well. But I think it's really more it's more appropriate here. Also, you know, what the hell is minimalism anyway? It's a guy um, tapping on the side of his leg, and that's it. I it's think minimalism. I will say yeah, though think, that when, when, as the track progresses, and then we get to that moment again that Steve was talking about that kind of breather where we have you know, these tiny little half notes or whatever we're calling them. Literal instances. But but the second time <laughs> yes, we... literally. Literally a moment in time. Yes. Literally. The, like this one, in fact. The thing that's interesting to me that seemed strange because I only made the connection because I'm so intimate with the song that it reminded me of, there's one glissando that the rise absolutely reminds me of the same exact glissando, synth glissando, in the beginning of the song, The Touch, by Stan Bush, which was featured in the animated Transformers movie. It's just a very specific single note that sounded to my ears identical to that note at the beginning of that song. There's absolutely no connecting piece besides that except that one note. And it's just one of those things that make your ears ring going, wait, is that? No, it's not even, what? And I thought that was fascinating to me that I connected that. All right, we're 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 one for one with esoteric references. Right. But you always have the 80s around the esoteric <laughs> references. Well, that's when I grew up. Minus 70s. <laughs> And after that second break, we get into the C section, the further arrangement, the actual eh. flushing out of the strings with... A double prime. I don't see a lot of change here. Well, you're seeing a lot more instruments. It's you're seeing a lot more strings. I, I would say it becomes thicker, but it's still, I agree with Steve, more of what we were getting, it's not same, something different. Yeah, the same melody is, is, is present here. The same idea is present here, but it's so much... Meteor, so much more flushed out. Uh, further string lines are coming in here that are just making me feel happy at this moment. I just love everything that's going on. I think maybe it has something to do with the fact that those breathers kind of like, you know, gut you a little bit. Well, like, they do. Yeah. Well, it feel and also those breathers like they are so purposeful that you have to focus on them. You have the, the way that they, the, the, they those harmonics. Move. Yeah, yeah. The Maybe. accidental notes that are happening. Like well, that's what they feel like. Yeah. But what's even more curious is I believe the 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 final little bits, the final little notes that come in right before we go back into the A section. The creaky seesaw. <laughs> I can you can detect that instrument starting it. You can detect that yeah. octave starting it back into it. It almost comes in a millisecond before everything else, but I was so there when I heard it, especially with this A double prime that it was it was like an eye opener, like, oh, there's the character. That's, That's I identified who we were listening to at that moment. The soft little, little creature that little, in the back? I would yeah. say that those moments... The little varmint? Yeah. <gasps> Oh, the, the, yeah, okay, those sure. moments made this track feel physical. Like a lot of the tracks clearly feel created within a machine. Whereas this really did feel like you were in an empty room with one person playing some kind of string, a violin, let's say for argument, and it's doing a this. It's a very small, small chamber ensemble. But, but, but you feel like you're in a small room with that chamber ensemble, nobody else, and when they pause, you almost breathe in. You go, like, like what's like the, next? The, the terrifying moment in like a recital where it's like, oh god, I don't want to breathe because then I'm going to be that guy that coughed. That someone's yeah, recording this, and I'm going to appear in everybody's recording. Oh god! It's just, it just it adds an intensity just based on the breath, which I think the silence and the pauses really cause. And for that reason alone, you purposely hold your breath. But it's the opposite of Shill. It it really is the exact opposite. Yeah. Instead of yeah, Shill's. Sure ability to just change itself this is this is what i i i guess honey words didn't do for me this is an instance i feel was elongated i feel like 
not just that, but I dived into it. I felt every single pluck and strum and every little moment by moment piece of this track, this this piece. That it being such an antithesis of Shill, it almost belies everything she was talking about for this album. She didn't want to dwell. She didn't want to stay on this idea. But here, the 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 crescendo of the album, the finale of the album, is just that one idea being crystallized, being shaped, and just sticking with it. Well, it should be said. I mean, Blackfriars is a common place name. It's a place name that's actually used like all over, you know, the UK. Um, be where she's from it could be a place where something happened it could be an association with a particular environment um in a particular town a memory something that just harkens back to you know the the incident as it were which we're all just kind of dancing around i mean no one knows the, the, yeah this song does definitely have this hesitation to it that you can definitely feel it's also why I said physical, because you can feel the hesitance, the, the weariness. And I think where that's coming from is because this feels more classical, finger quotes. This feels more... More than anything on the album, sure. I think it's her kind of hesitantly returning to what she's done, but affected. And I think that's what this is meant to represent. It may not, but that's how I take it. This This represents her internal struggle with what she's making and what she's made. That would be a bold claim if if um if it does in fact have to do with the the shift in her art, but yeah, we, we don't know. Like I said, I tried to downplay that in my intro and and how serious that was really for her. I think she's she's both worlds at once now. Well, what's curious is it's we're being left on the finale of this album with no techno, no electronica, no nothing that this album focused on. Yet I don't feel like this is an oddball. Like no. it, it just is, besides being individualistically beautiful, it is a great way to summate so much of this album as as it is moment by moment. I and think that, I well, I agree with that, absolutely. And I think this, this is a good place for us to start wrapping up and, and giving reviews for this record. So for me, I feel like, let's start from the beginning here so my history with electronica is pretty dicey on this podcast i i often come from a place of i appreciate it but i don't get it you know it happened with a lot of artists that we've reviewed um who i'm blanking on square pusher was one of the biggest examples is like there was clearly stuff i liked and there was clearly like i i got it in the sense that i understood the technical technicality how he operated why it was impressive i just didn't get it on on, on a level this speaks to me, and I cannot identify easily why. As I said earlier in the review, there are moments on this album where I absolutely have no idea how to feel. But that's impressive to me. As someone who relies on his emotions, wears his heart on his sleeve, and absolutely relates and finds ways to relate to almost everything or understand, there were moments here where I absolutely felt apathetic in the most bizarre way. Not devoid, but maybe unsure of what to feel not sure how to feel and that but then there were moments that came in where I absolutely felt an impact and knew how to feel and I think those that's what this final track did is reminded me how earlier and in the middle somewhere I absolutely had no idea how to feel and this track while it feels uncertain I think it's because emotionally it makes me uncertain and that's pretty powerful um her vocals I like her vocals I wish 
I, I don't know if I wish there was more of them on this album. I wish I've heard more of them because I like them. I don't know that any other track that was instrumental would benefit from her vocals per se or not benefit. I just wanted to hear more of them, but I don't know how that would happen because again, I don't know that I would change much here. Um, the only track that stands out like a sore thumb for change is Last Rose. I absolutely feel like it was cut too short. Even with Steve's explanation of why it might be, that just explains it. It doesn't, for me, excuse it. For me, I feel like there's still there could have been more expressed there. Beyond that, this album absolutely was a ride from start to finish. I'll admit a confusing one at moments, but for sure engaging and for sure interesting. And it's the first time I ever felt like with an electronic album, I actually understood the artist after hearing it. I don't know if I could tell you then after understanding it what it means word for word, but there was a comprehension in my brain where I go, okay, Anna, I get it. Don't expect me to explain it, but I get it. Um, there are moments though that kind of pull it back for me. The uncertainty that I get with Honeyed Words does make it hard to say whether I specifically enjoy it or not. Um, I don't dislike it for sure, but I'm just not sure where to sit with it. And that, that, that just, I don't know, I'm having trouble grappling, grappling with it. Maybe after more listens, it, it, that may change to a more certain perspective. Um, and I, I, like I said, Last Rose absolutely feels too short. I wanted more of that. That said, I think this album for me sits at a pretty neat 475. I think that when Steve brought up Marnie Stern and I reflected on that and how highly I rated it based on not having a clue on really how to take it, here, there's there's something, this is what I want from my electronic. I want to be pulled into it in a way that I maybe can't even explain. So for me, this is a 475. This is absolutely one of the hits of the year for me that I don't know if I would listen to a ton. I would definitely go back to, but I feel like I need to be in a very specific place to listen to this. I can't just have it all in the background. I want to be able to focus on it. This album absolutely is an experience for me and nothing else. I got into some interesting arguments with Steve before the podcast because this was a very polarizing album for us. Um, mostly because, honestly, at the end of the day, as far as enjoyment goes, it's not really there as a whole. I'm, I don't really enjoy the album. I enjoy lots of tracks out of the album. I enjoy lots of instances from the tracks I don't really enjoy on the album. But it's not, a, a, by the product, a solid experience for me, which is so hard to rate. It's one of the most polarizing things when we get to it because I understand a lot of the technical honest magic that's that's involved here it's it's amazing what some of the things happen like even my least favorite track by far my least favorite favorite track honey words I understand exactly what it was going for as soon as Matt explained it to me I'll, I'll make that concession but once the visualization was there between the title of the track and what was going on. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was a, a beautiful piece of art, but still, I did not enjoy it. I just, I just can't enjoy that track. And there's a lot of parts in this album which, musically, I just can't get behind. Because, on the one hand, Matt said electronica, we said electronica, we said pop a lot. It's not, it's neither of those. Electronica is only because there are MIDI and synths and things like that being used. It is not like EDM or anything of that sort. It 
at the end of the day, it, it kind of is its own beast. It's kind of, as, as I think Steve said a, a while ago, it's not really in any specific genre. It's really circling a lot of other different ideas. And some of these choices are really amazing. And some of these choices I just don't enjoy. And it's it's almost like a, a birthing process for a new idea is going on right here. Yes, on the one hand, it's beautiful. Yes, on the other hand, it's, it's a little gross. You can't get one without the other. And for me, that's, I guess, uh, it's, it's sort of seeing the miracle of a new genre occurring right here. Or maybe the first steps, maybe really just the conception of this new genre burgeoning through right here. I just know it's going to be messy and it ended up that way for me. I had a, a lot more critiques before we even did this this review and I had said a few of them just to piss Steve off uh, off air. It was it was just to get the ball rolling because a lot of it I just I didn't feel like I understood well enough on my own and as a preview for our topic it's going to come up that when we were discussing it when we were actually listening to this side by side it, it was in a different light. It still wasn't bright enough for me to really put it at that four seven five or even a four five. So this is this is a four point three. It's just not quite. I don't know. It's a very tough album to summarize. And I think I did it fantastically. You didn't do bad. You didn't do bad. Um. All right, a few points about what Matt said. Understanding the artist. Absolutely 100% agree. Probably the first Electronica album to do that for me as well. And uh, another point in rapid succession here. The genre. It's its own beast. It is so effortlessly individualistic. And that's what I love about it. I think it's that's been the great challenge of just about any kind of fusion. And this, like, like because of exactly that, they come across as fusion. Like, well, here's this thing, and here's that thing, and oh, look, they smacked them together, and what do you get? Like, it's almost intuitive in a way, or almost a, uh, almost a marketing ploy in a way. It's just because, like, well, if you like column A and you like column B, well, guess what? We're smacking them together. This isn't that. This is just Anna Meredith, and it is maybe two sides of her, but what you get in the end is just her. And I don't really think about this in terms of electronica or uh, classical. It's just she's a composer and this is her soul, which is why I, I keep repeating and why I, I loved that term, which I could, wish I could find who, who coined it, maximalism, because it, it's, it's a term that probably I'll never hear uh, ascribed to anything else. Her way of just sort of doing things slowly at such a slow pace before finally smacking you in the face with them, before tensing you up and then delivering you moments of pure joy. It's just, it doesn't hold back in almost any instance. On the album arc scale, that could be argued a little bit, but I do want to bring up one more anecdote. I showed this to a friend of mine, this album, and uh, not, you know, just out of curiosity, just was curious what uh, he had to say. And he came back to me and said, that was a challenging listen, but he said it in the most positive of ways, as opposed to the ways probably many of us have said at times, like, oh, this was a challenge to get through, you know? He didn't say it like that. It wasn't that tone at all. This was a challenge. It was refreshing for it being such of a challenge. That's what I've been looking for, for the history of this podcast, essentially. I think that's why we do this, because 
because I love I love challenging works. I love the fact that another thing what Matt said it makes me feel an emotion that I just can't quite understand. He called it well not quite apathy or an apathy I'm not sure of. I think we said it before and that's just the word for, that's enigmatic. Enigmatic is something that you just don't know how to take. Um, you know, we describe paintings as animatic. The Mona Lisa is the quintessential enigmatic figure because you don't know how to take her expression. What is it? Is it sad? Is it happy? Is it forlorn? We don't know. And we've been bouncing around this album all day, and yet we kind of have doses to see how she feels. And I just think I feel what I said in the beginning, the, the gut reactions and the gut um, instincts of Anna Meredith which, with uh, what she wants to do when she feels a certain way, which is to lash out uh, to to thrash out and she does it in so many instances on this album. It's just it's tight. It's cohesive And so that leaves me wondering am I circling a five? Is this a five for me? I, it make, it makes me really wonder what is a five because we only have one reference point well, No, excuse me. I have only one reference point so. Matt has done a five a few times and John has touched I believe once just like me So we really have only a few reference points to go off of when we're talking about that thing that just gives us just about everything we want in music and I, I, I really don't know because I've only used it for God sticks and I think well do you have to have a trilogy? Do you have to have um, the beautiful closing track? Do you have to have the exact arc of that? Is that what I've been looking for? That's a flawed argument. I don't think that's what a five is, but I do believe a five has to change music. Does it have to be perfect in every track? I believe it does, and that's what keeps me so far away from a five in most instances. But this does just about everything else. Everything else. Um, it will, I believe, if people follow through on it, if any composer learns from this album, change the face of music. There are just a couple tracks, a couple tracks, and only a couple tracks where I feel she could have gone a little further, where she could have been a little grander. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a cue from, uh, from the mysterious Mark H. If you're listening, mysterious. Um, it was an interesting thing he brought up in a comment on the FFS album in episode 181, uh, a comment responding on our review to his suggestion, where he said something about, uh, well, the album was a little lower for me, but I figured you guys would like this because you're more theatrically minded. And it made me think, wow, we've been a little, f we've been kind of favoring that. And I don't think this is theatrical at all. It's just its own thing. This is a 4.9. This is everything else but just a little bit of that. I think that's that's worth it to be exactly where FFS is, but with none of the theatrics and so much more emotion and so much more complexity. 4.9. I want to say that, um, you know, something that was interesting about listening to this album as a group, which we don't experience a lot previously, is that there was a lot more heated argument. Typically, we argue, we argue constantly, but we there was more heat between Steve and John that I had not seen in a while. And I think that really came from the fact that we listened to it together, which we do every week. We spend a week with it on our own, and then we get together, listen together, and then do our podcast. And I think that it's important to talk about this a little bit because we brought it up before on the show, but I don't think we really delved into how us listening together in the group affects how it hits us. True. Well, well first... Well, he's right, we were arguing. He's absolutely right. We were arguing earlier, and it, it is it is tough because we we find ourselves sometimes agreeing so much, so much, just because we're in the same room on our final pre-listen. I still argue it's necessary. There are days where I wish 
we didn't do it, um, not only because it, w- it would make our, our process a little bit quicker if we could just, you know, show up and say, all right, let's begin the podcast. But no, we got to get that pre-listen in just to collect our thoughts. That was the always the original intention. We collect our thoughts, we finalize them so that we're a little bit more organized, even on the days where it seems like we're a little less organized. Um, but there is a side effect to that, and the side effect is that you end up kind of sharing or just borrowing inadvertently other people's not just their feelings on the album, but their their emotions at that particular instance, which begs the question, would you have experienced that on your own? And we listened to it before, obviously, on our own, and sometimes we find ourselves in direct conflict. When we see someone else's reaction, and then we see what they see, and then it turns our worlds upside down. Pro and, or con. And in this case, the... I was I, I hated this album before we did it together. I, I really hated this album. I adored this album before we did it together. <laughs> really, as really adored. As a whole, I thought it was I thought it was terrible up until uh, our <laughs> type. Like it really took the fifth track for me to start enjoying this album. It was a weird effect because I wasn't I guess I, I wasn't really giving it the benefit for the doubt with like the face value nature of what I was experiencing the first time and on the way down for us to recording I listened to it again and it actually grew on me quite a bit on just the ride back from my house to our recording area which now that we're starting to like turn around and find the common ground here I will admit that maybe like I question myself am I giving the repetition too much leeway am I saying that that is like is that is that been my stance traditionally that repetition is generally you know oh yeah it works within the context of the and generally I'm I'm just almost all against it but I always find the context is important and I, I found that she was just owning it in a way here which made me love it from from almost from the get-go there are only a couple times where I wondered like like wow she's just she's just getting away with this for 30 seconds straight. Now you specifically like Nautilus because that's your first impression. First 30 seconds. How could she get away with it? But then but then the subtleties come in and it, it, it immediately made more sense to me. But I also have more of a history of, you know, a classical music background where things do take a little bit longer to develop. They might indulge in a certain section for upwards of five minutes before it finally evolves. It's a, if you're in that environment, then your perception of time changes. And I think this was a success at bringing a pop community, which is more predisposed to just, you know, it needs to be, you know, where's the next change? Where's the next change? I'm bored, I'm bored, you know. I, I I feel that this is actually satiating them in a little bit, but not too much. The perfect middle ground, the common ground for music. And I had no trouble seeing that. Well, I think what's interesting here is this is reminiscent, this experience we're talking about, how we influence each other when we're listening together, is the same thing I found when I've watched movies, specifically comedies, on my own versus in the theater. Um, They did a theatrical showing of Ghostbusters, the original, years and years ago. And I've watched Ghostbusters hundreds of times by myself. But watching it in the theater, there were jokes I laughed at and moments I really engaged in that I never did the same way on a, a private viewing. And I think that's really interesting. And I think there's a little bit of bleed over that for music with us. I think that while in the early days we only listened together and we didn't listen on our own and that clearly wasn't the right strategy for us though it did herald some really interesting moments i think that listening pre-listening separate and then listening together helps give a dynamic perspective i don't think it necessarily 
um, uh, uh, ruins or, 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 or harms the process. I think it just gives us an additional perspective. It, uh, it gives us more of a breadth, a more wider scope. Well, since you brought up uh, Ghostbusters comedy, I think comedy is, is probably the most related in, in this respect to music because comedy is so, so subjective. You know, everyone has a different c comedy style. But if you hang around the same groups of people, you find, well, first of all, just the fact that you may have even become their friend in, in the first place may have become because you had some common thread when it came to, uh, to comedy. And I find that a lot of cases uh, with me, you know, I find myself actually adapting to other people's comedy style the longer I hang around them. You know, the longer you're exposed, then you start to find the things that they might find funny well, funnier than if you heard them, let's say, from another person or, or the very first time. Then you're kind of just like, that was a little curious, you know, that, or that was kind of stupid, you know, and then later on you're you're seeing the value in this because you're seeing their perception. I think uh, it's 100% what, what people go through in mu with music as well, but it's more difficult because it's more personalized. And this this sharing when we listen together, this sort of depersonalization of it, I uh, just as uh, anecdotal, I'm terrible with words, in case any of the listeners didn't know this. And I say really dumb things that get cut from the podcast, but I say even dumber things before the podcast when we're trying to describe it. And I'm so bad with adjectives that, like, four times today I was corrected when we were just listening and I was trying to explain something that I heard and I didn't know how to explain it. And I believe I circled around one word for, like, five minutes, five solid minutes until... One of these two fine gentlemen finally said, and I don't even remember it at this point, but my point being, you get the ability to better express yourself when you start farming out these ideas, when you start everybody starting to try to describe the same thing. Well, maybe this is the word, but now the inspiration is over on this side, so you start narrowing down the the idea that we even do it on the show when someone makes a very good point. It's like, yes, that. That's the word I wanted to use to describe exactly what we're talking about. It's just a great way to flesh out your own opinion because you're able to play off and riff off of what other people are coming up with. But there's a difference between the objective and the subjective, which I think maybe you're getting a little bit confused here. Because if you're just talking about adjectives... Um, no, it's subjective. Uh, it's all about the subjective. Yeah, right. That can, imagery yeah. is certainly subjective. But sometimes it's almost like, it's almost a side point. We do it for, I think, just the the, um, the mental exercise. You oh, know, the relatability, to also, The relatability to make a connection with any listener because we, we, we've... Choo chosen for 192 episodes not to feature any of the music here uh, so that way you're you're kind of just expected to enjoy the album on one hand and then you know sit down let's discuss it let's have an let's have an intellectual uh, uh, conversation or even a debate about it um rather than let's say maybe interrupting you know the podcast with these various like well see this is what I'm talking about if you feel it I, I guess I've always kind of felt this about our format if you feel it if you believe it then you'll be able to describe it but it won't be easy. But it, you should be able to. But it won't be easy. But that's always why we sometimes kind of circle around. And sometimes we're on a day where someone has a little bit more trouble than the other person. Does that mean that they're less right? No. It doesn't mean that. It just means that they were searching for the ineffable. They're trying to, to capture something and relay it to the audience that they just don't quite have a hold of right there. Or they haven't yet figured out how how it is relatable, how to make it relatable in words, because you're dealing with an art form that very often is invented to do what words can't. 
And I feel like that's why the group lesson really helps flesh that out. I think that's a thing that, that while, yes, we would probably finish much earlier if we didn't have to do that, it, it, it's something that kind of gets us all on the same page. And even especially when we bring in a guest, when we have a fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh person on the podcast, getting us in line is easier to do once we've listened to it together, even if they walk into the format only sort of knowing what's going on. because not, not even knowing what's going on. Right, which we've had before listening to it together gets us in the same on the same page but I will add one more point that it does underplay that raw primal uh, emotional effect of you listening to music yourself you we've tried to factor that in but it always has to kind of circumvent our pre-discussion we kind of just have to hold that inner brain and remember how we were feeling when we were listening to it alone and remember that that's not going to simply be undercut just because of the discussion that we're now having together we need to factor both of them together when we come here and actually record otherwise we wouldn't be being true to ourselves. Like, for instance, the times I mentioned on this album where I was flailing my arms, you know, this wasn't in our, in our, you know, pre-discussion. I wasn't sitting there doing that in front of these two gentlemen. I was doing that alone, and maybe it's just something I don't always do, or I have to be complete, like, when we're cerebralizing it and we're being intellectual, then I wouldn't make that transition. Sometimes you'll see me kind of, like, bobbing in my seat there, but in general, I'm playing down what I would be doing in private, or, you know, in the car, or something like that. When I'm in, when I'm in the motion, or when I'm in the club, as... Anna Meredith herself kind of suggested was her motivation behind uh, being this this type of artist now and going into electronic and pop. That that's where it's really gonna come out. But I think that ties in very strongly to like our discussion previously about listening to something in headphones versus speakers. I think just like when we listen to something on headphones and speakers, and we take both and have to keep them separate but together mm -hmm. as far as understanding yep the same thing with this the individual listen and the group listen also have to exist separately but can blend and i think that's really really important for the process that we because have. people are flawed and yes. emotions can be warped you yes. know given a certain set you'd, i still like, say to this day if we had been pre-listening to um they might be giants, nanobots. Darlings of Lumberland would never have had the impact on us that it did. I hold that true. If we had a pre-listen, we would not have been agape. We would have been intrigued, but our mouths would not have been hanging open in that moment. Uh, I would not not pre-listen, solo listen. But listening by ourselves I, would have influenced no, the no. pre-listen. Right. I totally refute that because Darlings of Lumberland is still an amazing no, but, track but that not, hasn't lost any of its but impact. But I'm not talking about amazing or impact or emotionality. I'm talking about visceral reaction to the song would have not been the same without with those solo listens. But I would have heard it and had that reaction no matter what. Mm -hmm. In I fact, disagree. it might have been more impactful no. because it was by myself well, instead of trying to I think we fed I think, each other. Uh, I never thought about this before considering Darlings of Lumberland, but Matt may be right, and I think this directly relates with that thing I brought up about Mysterious Mark H. I think that my... I think theatrical music has come about during Crash Chords. That is not something in my history. Yeah. Like prior to 2012, before we began the podcast, maybe you guys were more about that. I was less about that. I was more into things that were really trying to get to those, you know, those, those like core, chordal emotions that are enigmatic. That's what that's what I liked in just about all kinds of music. But then, you know, we start looking at lyrics, and then we start liking these 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 bold transitions, and you know, and I guess that's something that came about, yeah, during the podcast in those early days because we were listening to things together for the very first time. And so a case like, you know, They Might Be Giants, I wasn't into them before. I mean, I didn't dislike the band, but I wasn't, like, really into They Might Be Giants until 
nanobots kind of showed me like, oh, this is what they can do. And I guess I was subconsciously affected maybe by seeing your guys' reactions and also John's being enamored by the lyrics. And for the first time, I'm looking at those lyrics really closely and I'm like, yeah, that, that, that's actually really clever. Yes, Steve's on my side. Woo! That never happens. Sorry. Well, um, no, it, I've been on your side the whole podcast. No, no, no. It's it was the other way around. Oh, but it is true. Matt's, Matt's been leaning towards your side as opposed to my side. That's so true. He's and usually I'm the moderator. A lot of times you guys are moderating. I'm like, uh, I'm kind of in the middle on this. And yeah. this time you took that role. I did take that yeah. role. We, have, we affect it. each other. So full of confidence this episode. End of topic. Chest out. End anyway. of topic. Topic resolved. <laughs> Success. Uh, before we get into what I, my pick for next week, um, Steve, do you have a, a succulent spam mail for us? I do have a spam, and it's by Chwilowski. No, there's no S. Chwilowski. That's what it is. I carry on listening to the rumor talk about getting boundless online grant applications, so I have been looking around for the finest site to get one. Can you advise me, please? Where can I find some? He's begging. Should we leave him hanging, too? Yeah. I have no idea what grant applications he's talking about. Okay. Sorry, Chwilowki. Which he only mentions once, yet refuses to describe. I mean... Go bot other sites. There's plenty of other sites in the sea. Uh, that's just gross. You can take out grant applications and put anything else in there. Moving on. No, I don't want to. I'm going to dwell on it. I want to help. I'll it. Um, Not so, really. So my album pick for this week is actually kind of a, um, a callback to an episode where we specifically referred to one track that I was obsessed with by this band on a previous record. Um, since then, I've heard the entire record, and I like it, but I hold true that that track is my favorite. So the band is called M83. The song is called Midnight City, which I obsessed over after seeing it in Warm Bodies. And we talked about it. I talked about it so much in that episode. Steve featured the single's cover art in the gallery photos that week. Um, Probably in the wrong order, too, because we didn't have a format. Not really then, anyway. <laughs> it was like the, the featured. So, um, so yeah. So I was obsessed with that song. Um, I sub subsequently listened to the record. I liked it. I felt that it had highs and lows. But all in all, I enjoyed the record, and I love that song still, still to this day. Um, well, they have a brand new record out called Junk. And I figured, since you guys have both been bringing on a ton of electronica and or kind of pop dance... Like the, or electronica that dabbles in pop dance, I should bring something that's more kind of mainstream, but still electronica that's often interesting. And I haven't really done that. I'm and M83 this. is a band that I've connected to. I'm um, absolutely they, failing this. They often have vocals, but not always. Um, the vocals are are often fairly instrumental. You know, sometimes there's there's some substance to the lyrics. I don't want to say that they're they're non-existent, but I feel like the the lyrics spend more time being an additional instrument than actually going, oh, that's a really great point, or I love the narrative here. You're really selling this one hard. I and the best part is I've not even heard it. I believe that my first exposure to M83 was a single spot in the soundtrack off of Stranger Than Fiction. Yes, they were on that as well. Yeah, and I was, and I was really, really enamored with that track, and I was like, mm, gotta check, out these, check these guys out. But I, I, th I think I, I bailed on I, that. I, I, I don't think I properly checked them out. I checked them out a little bit. To, I liked one album. To be clear, I believe M83 is just one dude. We will definitely know for sure by next week. But um, I love it. M83 on episode 193. That worked out by accident. We're going to take a look at that next week. And remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. 
To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.